Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. An open letter to Harlan Ellison. Dear Harlan Ellison, So I read in Isthmus.com that you're dying and I came away sad. Sad like I've never been for a person I've never met. I know it's got to happen sometime, and you've got some decades under belt, but death is something we keep in a shoebox in a closet with pictures of relatives we've never liked. But since you're coming out and talking about it so freely, and I really appreciate that you are, I don't want to eulogize after the fact. I want to take a few minutes to tell you what your work and your life has meant to me while you're still here. I steeped myself in comics as a kid, and not so much books, so I discovered you through television. First, Star Trek City on the Edge of Forever, and years later, Shatterday at the very beginning of the new Twilight Zone when I was 16. I remember hanging out at a friend's house looking through his high school lit book, and there on the page was Shatterday. Hey, I know this story. It was on the Twilight Zone. I read it then and there, and your name was branded on my brain. Years later, my religious practices consisted of watching you on Sci-Fi Buzz each Sunday morning, and there I began to get an idea of not what your work was, but who you were. Turns out you were an articulate amalgamation of steeped in the past, living in the moment, spying on the future, wrapped in 20 terajoules of attitude. I had a new hero. I went actively digging around for your work, and I found it here and there at libraries and second-hand bookstores, and even in new bookstores when White Wolf reissued some, but not enough of your stuff. In September of 1994, about three years into my less-than-illustrious writing career, I wrote a letter to you asking for some basic advice on multiple submissions, because I had heard conflicting advice from others. Exactly six months later, I nearly wet myself with joy when I received your response. You began, Mr. Smith, first thing you learn not to do if you want to be a professional, not someone who acts like an amateur, is to write to working professionals asking chatty questions that have been answered in thousands of how-to magazines and books. And then you spent the next three paragraphs answering my questions. At the end of the letter, you wrote, Now go be a big success. No need to write me back to say thank you. No need to write me back and point out I'm a surly motherfugger. M-U-T-H-U-H-F-U-G-G-A-H. I already get sufficient complaints about that. Cheerily, Harlan Ellison. Needless to say, I was overjoyed. Not only had Harlan Ellison busted my balls and made me laugh, but he actually answered my questions after bitching about them. You, my friend, are a class act. I'm a long way from being that big success, but I am getting there, and you've helped, beyond that letter. Your writing showed me how to get down and dirty on the page, and how much freedom I have. Your description of Maggie Money Eyes knocked me on my ass, and made me show other people what real writing was. Your post-apocalyptic vision at the end of The Beast That Shouted Love scared the shit out of me, as did the entirety of I Have No Mouth. Your Harlequin introduced me to a new and magical type of revolutionary. Mephisto and Onyx blew me away, and Sensible City put one evil grin on my face. Your work inspires me. Your life inspires me. Your passion gets me moving. You have made me seek out great work, yours and that of others, and share it with other people. You put that excitement in my voice when I'm talking about art and artists. You drove me to work more. You made me dig down deep into my own stories and dredge up what really mattered, show it in the light, and give it life. Look, I'm never going to lead a fraction of the life you've led. I'm not going to get fired from Disney after four hours for floating ideas of Mickey porn. I'm not going to sleep with hundreds of women. Hell, as a science fiction fan, I count myself lucky to have slept with one. I'm never going to mail a dead gopher to Random House. I simply don't have your balls. Here I am at 41 with only a couple dozen or so published works when you had many hundreds more at my age. 
You had more fire than I had. You worked harder than I did. But you've raised the bar for all of us. And though most of us can't come close to jumping that high, we do try, and we end up jumping higher than we otherwise would have. So although your faith in humanity seems strained, if not lost sometimes, I want you to know that humanity is a hell of a lot better now than it would have been without your example to follow. I'm never going to be like you, but I am a better person and a better writer than I would have been without you. I can't ever thank you enough for that, and I want you to know that I love you, Harlan Ellison. Not so cheerily, Matthew Sanborn Smith. There you go, that's the second time in many weeks that I've started the show with something a little bit different to the normal intro. And Matt, do you know what I mean? Matt sent us that over. You just mentioned on an email, Tony, I would like to write something about Hall Nelson. And I said, yes, Matt, please send it over. He sent it over and, you know what I mean, it just stopped me in my tracks. So, and, I, and I had to play it straight away. So, Matt, thank you so much for that. You know what I mean? You know, this is the one of the kind of facts are one of the pointers that what makes Starship Silver what it is do you know what I mean it is like a community podcast if anybody's got anything like that please send it over on any topic you know what I mean we we here to play anybody's views on anybody writers and that was just an amazing emotional thing Matt like I say again you're a star thank you so much coming up in today's show I have on the line in a few minutes' time Mr. D. Kniff, and we chew the fat over all the editions of Starship Sova's Volume 2. Look out for that. Film talk again this month comes up from Rod Barnett. Rod, thank you so much for this. Main fiction is The Fantastic Five Thrillers by Robert Reed. A fantastic story, nearly an hour and three quarters long. Look out for that. Then we have an interview with Hanu Rajani, who is one of the kind of hot new writers. Charlie Stross is raving about this guy. I thought I'd get him on. I've got a couple of stories. We've played one already by Hanu. I've got a couple of stories in the pipeline as well, which will be very soon. But I thought I'd get him on for a little quick interview, just so you, you know who Hanu is. Then we have a little promo by Bob, and that is Starship Sova's 156 Oral Delights. I hope you do enjoy it. Again, thank you so much, Matt. Let us crack on with a fine show. So it's Oral Delights number 156, which, and it's the end of the month. And end of the month is artwork. Look at that. Brian Thomas Woods. Wow, sir. You know what I mean? How can people do that? I have got no talent whatsoever. Do you know what I mean? When I see these pictures coming in, Brian, that's stunning. Thank you so much. Brian's got some work in Starship So has Volume 2 as well. So anyone will get a copy of that, well, you, you better. <laughs> you know, look out for that. Brian, honestly, big hugs. Thank you so much, sir. Just before we kind of kick off into the main section of the show, we have like a little announcement, a little call out for ideas and thoughts. If you remember a while ago, David Bradshaw, he actually did the music for Starship Sova's video, which David and Dee put together. The music is fine. Everything, do you know, I put it down the feed, so hopefully you've all seen that. 
the the video. Wow, fantastic! But when I played David's like the the actual music just by itself on the show, I was actually not inundated, but I got certainly got a number of emails which surprised me about music and about making like a, a, having like a music section. And you know, it kind of yeah. So that's a that's a good idea. And like you say. I haven't got a clue, like kind of science fiction music out there. So I'm humming and hard about it, you know, and I thought there is only one guy that I kind of really would like to get that, you know, and up and running. But I know, you know, David was kind of, is a busy lad, but I sported, well, I sported Mrs. Bradshaw, you know, I twisted Mrs. Bradshaw's arm to twist David's arm, Mr. Bradshaw. And so we're going to have a music section in the show, like once a month. Little kind of again, like a, like a fact article, and hopefully with the music as well. So, if you know any science fiction music that can kind of be played on the show, it'd be best if it's kind of you know we can play it. It hasn't gone through all copyright, and you know it's not big kind of film scores. If it's just something that's out there on the internet that you know about, that's a science fiction tune. Let me know. Send me an email or send David an email. Send it to me first, and then I'll pass it on to David. Starshipsover at gmail.com. And David's going to, like say, do a little talk about the music and then play the music as well, just like he did for his, you know, track. So please, have a little search around the internet or if you know any kind of music. Or, here's the thing, if you can produce music yourself, or it's got like a sci-fi slant, send it over. That would be a fantastic. <laughs> Interview time. D, what on earth happened to you? A <laughs> uh, bit of a bit of an accident on uh, on Arthur's day for the fall down the stairs in a pub. <laughs> well, I can just to let everyone know. I can actually see D now on the on the Skype video. He's sitting there with his little bandage round his arm. Have you broke it then? Have you? Because it looks like it's broke there. Or no, I fractured my uh, my scapula, so, and there's nothing they can do about that. They they can't. Uh, uh, they can't uh, bandage it up or anything, so I'm just going to keep it steady for the next couple of weeks. No work for at least a week, anyway. Yeah, this is a this is a cruel and sick thought I had, you know, D, when you first told us. It was like, uh, right, it, it, uh, will it still be on for the 10, 10, 20, 10? <laughs> well, I think we're mostly there and everything now. We're just, uh, I, I'm waiting on that, that uh, first proof back from Lulu. Oh, I uh, had mine ages ago, man. Yeah, but the, the post here in Ireland is awful for some reason. It can take up to two weeks to get something that takes only a day to get to you. Well, we so. actually, i tell you what we did as well. well you, you know about it, but we were hopefully going to try and get it as an IS, is I, I can't forget the name, ISDN. That's ISBN. Right. ISBN. So hopefully we can get it out in um, Amazon and places like that. But that does not make it a whole lot of more work for you because you got it, didn't, wasn't the... The board hasn't, everything's a little bit got to be tweaked. Yeah, they seem to have uh, have kind of little rules and regulations about size of, of text on the page and the, the width of borders and the amount of space that, that can be printed on, not printed on. And it seems like uh, quite a pain, actually, for, for to, to actually you have to sit down and actually go through exactly what they want. But uh, I actually, I, I don't know, I, I'd, I'd risk uploading what we have and seeing if they decline it. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, the, the good thing as well, though, is if hopefully, you know, hopefully we'll get it through. But if not, we've still got the the original version where we can just kind of put out the, the copies that we've got. Because me and you both, me, well, 
I've actually got the physical copy here, and it looks honestly D. It looks cracking. Do you know what I mean? Cracking. <gasps> We've only been working on it for the guts of a year, so we should. Uh... <laughs> That's it, isn't it? A year. You know, and when you think the other one, two weeks. Two weeks, and I don't know how. Well, obviously, this is a lot bigger uh, uh, page count, a lot more stories, and every bit of art in it is has been commissioned and is been contacted from from a, an illustrator whereas the last one was kind of thrown together but uh you know I, I literally i've been putting 10 hours a week into this for the last <laughs> well, 40 weeks so it's it really is uh been a huge amount of work compared to the first one and then also with uh with the captain's logs in there as well which was a hell of a lot of work that, yes, yeah. that was, wasn't it? When you when we're thinking about, it, there was. Um, I think there was more than what we realised, and, and I know that sounds a bit cheeky because everyone else had to do the typing. But all of a sudden, wh- when it was that was finished, then uh, I especially kind of thought, "Oh, wait on, we've actually got to do a lot of work here, like the proofing." Because I didn't. It wasn't just that really getting the you know converted what what this is you know converted over. What they pointed out, they've all got to kind of sit together and look similar. Because everybody's script was different, wasn't it? Yeah, there was, you know, the, the way people placed their name, colon, tech, uh, what, what, what each person said, and even the spellings of certain words, you know, cuz, spelled C-O-S-C-U-S-C-U-Z, you know, <laughs> with an apostrophe, you know, all sorts of different variations of every word. And between uh, yourself and Kieran, there, there, there's words that uh, nobody has ever heard before. Uh, <laughs> So it was, everything had to be standardised in that as well, which was an awful lot of work finding and, and deciding on the style of each each uh, each word. And you know what was funny? Actually, it was you that says you can't do that. But I says to D, I says, Demon, just let it be. Let them go as they are. Let them. It's individuality. <laughs> just no, Tony, you can't have it like that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was no. There was there was a lot of hard work on that one. Uh, and I think when we initially started on uh, Volume 2, it's, it, it, I thought, oh, wow, we're starting in January on this one. I'll have it finished by February and I'll be able to sit back and not do anything for the rest of the year. But it literally has been daily having to do something, whether, you know, contact an artist, uh, contact you, you know, uh, get back to an artist and, and, and uh, an inquiry that they have, you know, finding... Something you know. Every day there has been you know a lot to do, which is uh, mind-boggling that, you know, that we got the first one done. I would be interested to you as well. Tell us about the artists. You know, like who have you got on board? How will you get them on board? And what can people expect in the book with the artists? Um, well, the first time we did, I uh, basically I had a, a big stack of of old uh, out of copyright comics. That I just basically went through and uh, uh, pulled out images that looked vaguely like they might, uh, <laughs> but might suit the story. Which and I think in mo- mo- most cases in, in Volume One that w- they did suit, and you wouldn't have noticed. And there was one or two that I found on the internet that I contacted people, and, and you know, there was one or two that were commissioned for Volume One. So it was with, with this one, it was like really, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to contact everybody that I lo- think is a brilliant artist and see if we can. Uh, get some original commissioned art for this. And I was actually amazed with the amount of people that jumped straight on board. Uh, and, you know, there are people who work for 
We've done work with Pixar, with Marvel, with DC, with 2000 AD. You know, they, they're just, just incredible, incredible artists. And actually, at, 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 at this point, I must do a huge apology to Skeet. Oh, and yes. On <laughs> the video that we put up for, uh, for the Starship Volume 2 promo, uh, I forgot to mention Skeet. <laughs> and I'm so embarrassed. And I think it's mostly because Skeet, when he was commissioned to do the cover, was back within two days. I and mean, we had the cover in January before we had anything else. And I haven't had to worry about Skeet because he was there straight away. Whereas every day I've been thinking about other artists. Oh, i got to contact this guy. i got to contact somebody else. i got to find this guy. Whereas Skeet was on the ball straight away and totally forgotten about it. So uh, I really have to apologize to Skeet because he did an amazing job. And I feel like such a such an idiot for... Uh, for leaving him off the, the, the video. So we're going to have to try and remedy that. i got to see if there's a way of replacing that YouTube video, but without losing the link, because I've gone out and had a look online, and there's a link to that video in, in lots of places. Oh, I know. So, that's, that's the only snag, you know, because I was thinking, oh, we'll, we'll just put it, you know, we'll just kind of sort it out and get deal, just kind of squash in a name. It just it doesn't work like that, you know. It now, work like that. no, no. So, so uh, next time, do, Skeet. <laughs> we're gonna have to do something for Skeet now. Like, uh, I, I'll do do something. I'll do a book of just his covers for him, <laughs> <laughs> or, or I'll do a video just for Skeet. And I really, really gotta say sorry to him because uh, I overlooked him. I think he feels that he did something wrong. He absolutely didn't. It was me just being an idiot. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what's different about this book as well. And I mean, it, you know, just basically we kind of, I, I took the idea off um, Corey Doctorow as well, is to have in certain volumes, there's going to be these extras. And what Dee was saying there is like having, getting the artist was, uh, you know, a total hassle. You know, you kind of every day trying to get the extras all sorted out and... Do you know, because it, it's just like human nature. Some people, you know, reply straight away. Some don't. We had to have proper documents, you know, things coming back, this coming back. And then I had to, some came digitally, some came photographs. Some was, oh, it, that was a nightmare. How was that going? How did it go for you, D, then? When well, actually, you got actually, it? I, I think you'd done most of the work. It, it all arrived over to me in, a, in that one package, or most of it did, that you... Uh, that you, you'd kind of collated and sent over. And I think on the, one of the forums, we have a, an unpacking of that envelope, which was great because there was just so much good stuff in it. Uh, and there was a the few odd digital things and then a few things that we actually didn't have. Uh, you know, so we, there was a, a photograph enclosed that actually wasn't enclosed. And uh, but what I think we've done it. The, 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 that bonus section looks fantastic. And what, what, what did we end up calling it there? Uh, engine room, starships over engine, engine room. room, and that yeah. would well, actually that's not. I don't know if I told you that's not an original kind of name because I pinched it off. I used to do a, part of the starship sofa. There was a, a, a little segment of a show called the engine room where oh, okay. where so we had like different same kind of. I don't know if it was same guests, but I know Fred was in there and Diane and. I can't even remember what <laughs> I can't even remember what we used to talk about, but that's where the engine room kind of came from. So. But it's a good, it's a good little name for it. Yeah, uh, but it looks great, and it it, it it is great to see the the, the workspaces of uh, of all these various writers and, and and the little bits of ephemera that they sent as pictures, postcards. Uh, Corey's one is brilliant. I don't know. Can I say what Corey sent? Yes, please. Yes. Oh, uh, 
his uh, ticket for the, the, the Light Hadron Collider in CERN. That was, uh, you know what was funny? Because he, he, he sent this, and it was just, I, I, it just had, I'll, I'll send over me an L here, was it Large, sorry, Large Hadron, it was just, yeah, and I didn't know what that was. <laughs> When I got that in the envelope and I, I picked it up, I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. And I just, just to test kind of the geekiness of, of the actual item and maybe the geekiness of the people I worked with, I walked around showing them to them and there's about three or four of the guys who just absolutely squeed over it. They're, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, that was amazing. <laughs> so I think it was a very, very cool bit of ephemera. But we got, you know, that same sort of stuff from, from a lot of people, which it's great to get that sort of insight into... Uh, into into their working lives and their personal lives, and uh, I actually even in the, the, the discovered through the, the process of hunting down some images for, for for this as well that there's a guy uh, with a book called Shed Working, and it's uh, there are so many people around the world who writers uh, artists who have their offices and their work areas set up in a garden shed. And I think Neil Gaiman is one of them. He has he has his office, set, his working office set up in a gazebo at the back. And uh, I ended up contacting this guy to get a photograph of Gaiman's uh, office space and uh, found out all, all these amazing other pictures of, of people who have various workspaces <laughs> in, in their shed. It's great. That was, there was, there was two things where it, it kind of, I was thinking, oh, this whole thing either hinges on certain things and it was getting game and signatures and trying to get in um, China Mievo because I wanted him in as well. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, they got delighted actually. All the signatures came in that, that, that package and there was one or two that came afterwards and uh, it's going to be a bit of a labour of love getting each and every uh, one of those special signed 25 editions looking perfect. Uh, but it I think that there will be absolutely outstanding because each of the each of the writers has a, a a different obviously different signature, but you know some of them signed in like Koi Doctorow's looks like this amazing graffiti with a big thick black marker. Uh, I think Pat Cadigan signed each and every one of them in a different coloured marker, and it's just like it's beautiful seeing all these different styles of, of autographs. And you know to, to buy an edition of of a of an anthology like this signed by every one of the authors, I think is going to be an outstanding little, little, uh, addition to your collection. If you're, if you're a sci-fi uh, fan, you know, that's the thing I was going to, cause you're a bit of a collector in these kind, that kind of side of things. Do you, has that, does that often happen where every writer of a, like an anthology can gets it signed? Or is, is well, it? I don't know. To be honest, I don't think like it's a very, we've done it in kind of a clever way. I think with the, the sending off, individual uh, uh, signature sheets to, to every uh, writer for them to sign. And then basically I'm going to cut each, each signature out and mount them, hand mount them onto each of the books. So it, it, the only other way of doing that would be to get all 25 copies sent <laughs> individually to every, every writer. On it. And to, I don't know how many millions of miles uh, of, of air traffic, of, uh, air miles we'd have to get that and it'd take months to maybe even years to get it from one person to another person without losing them so I, i'm not sure if if it's been done before I, I won't say it hasn't but you know to, to get the the likes of uh of neil gaiman and, and cory doctorow and china mayville and all these you know people from around the world you know america england australia canada to all all signing 
the one the one anthology. I think it, it, it's an amazing, uh, amazing achievement. Well, go on, tell me then what from the. How, what we got in because we this this is the kind of cool thing you can do with when you do it like you kind of do it yourselves you can have different versions and that's like i say cory doctorow had this idea and his is actually taken and it still hasn't been out yet and ours this took like i say a year to go out and it was cory doctorow had this idea of getting you know like writers and having little extras and doing different editions of a book so like see i just seen that thought we could do that quite easily and this is what we've come up with so do what what we got there? What what well, what's it, on offer? What's on offer would be uh, we've got a regular paperback now. Actually, this year we've uh, if anyone bought the Captain's Logs, they'll have noticed that uh, it's a, a really nice size. I think it's a, a five by six, or I can't remember the size off of hand. Beautiful size uh, compared to even last year to the two or three various sizes we had for for Volume One. So what we're actually going to be doing is re-releasing Volume 1 in this size. So as you can put together your Starship library over the years, and all the books will be the same size. This isn't a cunning plan to get you to buy the same book twice or three times. It's just to make it easier for you to fit it into your library. All the Starship books will be the same. So Volume 1 in paperback, uh, I'm not sure, around about 999, something like that. Then we're going to have uh, the paperback of Volume 2, uh, which will be... Ten ninety nine thereabouts, and then there'll be a paperback with the extras, which is the, the the engine room stuff, which is all the photographs and little bits of ephemera from each of the the writers. Uh, then we're going to have a really nice hardback, not like the hardback we had last year, which was kind of like a nineteen seventies Christmas annual. This is be a proper proper sized hard hardback with a, a wrap around slip cover. That's going to be coming in at about fourteen ninety nine, uh, and then we're going to have that hardback again with the extras. Uh, which is coming in about sixteen ninety nine again, and then there's going to be twenty five limited edition versions of the hardback with the extras plus signed by every writer uh, involved with the project. Which is, uh, I'm not sure what the price on that is yet, but it's absolutely going to be a fantastic collector's edition. And then I think we'll be selling a, a PDF version as well, which can be used on your iPhone or your iPad or your Android. Uh, and but by all accounts, it looks amazing when when you view it uh, on an iPad. Uh, and then I think we'll be trying to sort out an EPUB version as well that can be used with Kindle and, and all those various versions. Now that's quite a lot of work getting that converted, uh, and I'll see how I go on that. But I think that that's uh, and actually, if we can, I'll do it again. What we did last year, the uh, Corey uh, put a call out for a high school in America for the blind who were looking for EPUB versions of books that they could translate into Braille on their... Uh, they have a special Braille printer. So there was a copy of uh, Starship Volume 1 sent over to them for for the, you know for, for younger uh, teenagers to read. So I'm hoping that we can maybe send across the, the Volume 2 as well so as we can get a couple, couple of copies done up in Braille for people who need it. So... Uh, there's a couple of versions, there. and uh, I'm guessing that if anyone else has a, has a a preferred version that they'd like, that if they contact us, together <laughs> for them. So uh, yeah, a lot of versions there to for, for to shoot to uh, suit everybody's pocket. What about the? Because this is actually used to be in a little way. What about the hardback? Are we not going to do the the, the big, the, you know, the kind of the, the annual hardback? 
Well, that was that was one of the only that I didn't realize that the thing with Lulu is is having to design it up to the size they want to upload it, order it, wait for it to come back, and then you go, oh, that's what that actually looks like. So I think the last year that the hardback that we ordered last year. I wasn't sure what it was going to look like until it came back. And I was a bit, not disappointed, but a bit like, oh, that's not what I thought it was. Whereas the hardback that I've designed up for this year is actually a proper, proper hardback like you'd buy in, uh, you know, a trade hardback. So with, with, with a slip cover that, that wraps the whole way around, you know, a proper hardback. So I didn't realise I was surprising you with that one. <laughs> I'm surprised all the way through, man. You just, you know, <laughs> people tell me things I kind of forget. What there's one thing which was still—it's me probably more than kind of D is. There, I don't know. I don't think there's going to be like a free download one, or if there is, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm, we're still kind of chewing that and emailing backwards and forwards with D to whether that's going to be a possibility. If there is ever like a free one, I think. It would just be plain text, you know. That I don't think there would be anything kind of there on the kind of with the extras, you know, because that's what you're paying for, like the extras one. You know, I'm honestly hand on heart. I'm so proud of that extras one, you know, to, to get all them things, to, to get inside people's, you know, houses and photographs and just find out a little bit extra about them. You know, that's what we're kind of why we're charging, I guess. You know what I mean? And. I would want to kind of put that out, okay, give that out in a free kind of download, you know. So, all all, well, it was, all, all uh, the artwork that you, you know what I mean? Some of that artwork, they, like you say, there's Hugo winners in there. Well, absolutely. There's, uh, you know, like uh, I got a, a picture from uh, Bob Eggleton, who's, who's a, a Hugo winner for, like, uh, he's, he's just an incredible artist. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's so many guys that have been with us throughout the years doing work for us, like, uh, uh, Brian Thomas Woods, who's done a, co- a couple of fantastic covers for uh, uh, Starship o- over the last year or so. Uh, you know, there's so many great guys involved in this that it really is uh, worth it. For one, if you're a fan of science fiction, it's a great anthology. Two, if you're a fan of any of the particular writers, it, it's a great addition to your, to your library. And three, if you're a fan of, of comic book art, there's this collection of, of absolutely amazing comic book artists and, and fine artists involved in this project are really you know that there's some old school people involved like there's Ian Miller I don't know if you, if you know him he would have worked uh, he worked on the original Lord of the Rings cartoon uh, he would have done all the, the the fighting fantasies the Steve Jackson fighting fantasy choose your own adventure novels uh, you know there's, we've got guys going back you know 20-30 years in the business and we've got guys who are, who are like just recently on the scene so it's an amazing collection of artists and art involved in this project and Skeet which is <laughs> I can't leave him out again I really the cover of this one is just was perfect I think it's really set the tone because we got it so early in the project it, it was able to set the tone for me the whole way through the project yes it was I mean I must admit we, we like, what do you say now we got that straight away and I think straight away we got the buzz to do it. Do you know what I mean? Because well, yeah, it's it's hard to kind of you know to, to kind of start these things. You know, with no, you know, you, you kind of get the stories where you don't really know where you're going, and all of a sudden, these pictures just grounded uh, grounded me, especially so that like, right, that's what we're aiming for. Do you know what I mean? And it was just what a fantastic cover. Oh, it's beautiful, and it really it, again, it, you know, volume one he pulled it out so quickly. 
and uh, we really had just like like, like a, a perfect cover for number one and number two again the volume two this is it just it's perfect it's it's of the time it's of the era uh, and it really you know I was able to have th- that picture printed out on my wall beside me every day for the for the for the, the, the entire process knowing this is what's going to be coming at the coming out in October so you know the, the Keith's picture was kind of a, was a was was driving uh, driving me for the last couple of months on this so it was a uh, we'll have to get him onto volume three right now yes I do I get Keith start drawn now I'll tell you what I was going to mention as well mind you and this is it's it's not really kind of me you know trying to desperately get pennies off people but these hardbacks with the extras and the signatures like Skeet was saying there there's 25 copies do you know what I mean that's it that's all it's going to be but listen this is the, the thing I want one I guess D wants one you know what I mean I've, Josh and Skeet they've got to have them so there's four gone already do you know what I mean so if, if people want these kind of things I've certainly got to you know think about the, I think they will go they'll be up on the side because they're not they're not really you're going to get them through Lulu you're going to we're going to notice the order then it's going to get shipped to D and then D's going to kind of build these things up so well, yeah, I don't know how we're going to organise that I think it's going to have to be ordered through PayPal or something like that as opposed to through Josh has sorted out and D don't worry yeah. about that yeah, Josh will do that <laughs> he'll, he'll wave his magic web fingers and make it happen uh, and I'll post them out individually to each of the people that that uh, uh, have ordered them, and I think they will snap up because they're, they're 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 you know it's a really good good collection of signatures to have. Well, what uh, I'm hoping, I mean, what we're all hoping for is something like Game and kind of twitters it or you know mentions on his blog. You know what I mean? A million and a half people on Twitter. It's yeah, or you know, get a boing boing again. That's always it's a, you know if, if we can get mentioned by by something like Gaiman or. Uh, or, or Corey on their sites that, that, that that's a, an automatic huge amount of traffic and I, uh, there's a lot of people out there who'd be you know completist collections uh, collectors like me I think I'm, a, I'm an absolute uh, fanboy for, for Neil Gaiman stuff and I've just got hundreds of, of uh, comics and books upstairs uh, that, that, that are signed by Gaiman that I'm picking up off eBay or buying from, from various places so you know if, if I if I saw this book on sale somewhere else signed by Gaiman I'd be buying it so <laughs> And I think what with the I think what we'll do is we'll like even take it down cheaper because that's for the the paperback of the volume one. If anyone wants it, just in a collection, I'll, I'll kind of have a chat with D after the show. We'll try and get that even cheaper. Do you know what I mean? Just so if you did want it like that, then you know you paid for it once. We we'll kind of have it like you're paying like a full kind of whack again. So hopefully we can get that kind of cheaper. Plus. Well- it's even that you know that it's that paperback size which is a cracking size because that's the one where we copied off Will Wheaton and he's used it. And it's, it's only two ninety nine postage or something, which is an amazing. That was a problem that we found last year with Lulu, and why we ended up going with Blurb for one or two of the sizes was that after you've gone through the whole process of designing it up to the size you need it, uploading it, ordering it your first copy. Uh, proofing it, and you know, you're, you're two or three weeks into the process, and then somebody orders it, and the post and packaging on it is like like eighteen ninety nine, and it's like, holy shit, where, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, so we we found that last year with with, with Lulu that the pricing can be a, a a big problem, but the, the this particular size that as you said yourself was is, is Will Wheaton's book book size of, of preference. Uh, it's, it's a lovely size. It's it's it's. 
just big enough that that, uh, that uh, everything fits on the page nicely, and it's not uh, it's not too small. I think that one of the the blurb edition of Volume One last year I found to be a bit cramped. There wasn't there wasn't as much real estate on the page to, to fill. Uh, so I think it's it's a really nice size, and, and again, if anyone's ordered uh, uh, the captain's log logs, they'll know the size of the book. It's kind of it, it's it's bigger than a paperback, slightly smaller than a trade paperback. It's it's, it's a really good size. Very yes, very nice. So I'll give you a rundown once again, just before we go, of what we're going to have. We're going to have the, like the direct. PDF download and that'll be either straight from Lulu or if we can kind of sort out with an EPUB version it'll be probably straight from the site that's going to be four ninety nine. then we're going to have the volume 1 which will be I'm not too sure where we're going to set it but it'll certainly be cheaper than what this new one's out if anyone just kind of wants to get it because Dee's put the little what's really cute Dee he's got the little triangle red triangle in the corners now that says Hugo winning podcast you know what I mean oh, absolutely <laughs> We did. Ha- we did have. Uh, I think on on, adi- on some of the editions or later editions of the Captain's Logs uh, 2010 uh, Hugo nominated podcast. <laughs> All of those covers had to be to, to be updated to, to reflect the uh, Hugo winning. Uh, yes. So. So there's going to be a, a normal paperback with no extras. That we're going to price that at 10.99. Then there's going to be the paperback with the extras, which is going to be 12.99. Then, as Dee said, there's going to be a hardback which will have no extras in, which will just be like 14.99. It'll still have the pictures in from all the artists and everything like that, but it's not going to have the the, the engine room guts of it in. Then we're going to have a hardback with the extras, which is probably going to go for 16.99. And then there's these 25 copies, which is the hardback with the extras, with the signatures. There's going to be 25 of them. And I think we're going to roundabout price them between 75 and 100. We haven't kind of made our minds up yet, but that's the kind of ballpark where we're looking. So, D, final question. Broken, broken whatever you've got, are we still on for 10, 10, 20, 10? Absolutely, we're 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 well on target. Uh, well, our PR our PR machine is starting up with our video and uh, and uh, you know cover being sent out to places and the, t- the table of contents being sent out. Uh, I don't think there's very much left for me to do on this particular project. I think once the, the first set, I get my proof copy in from Lulu, we're ready to go. Uh, barring somebody from say somebody ordering a copy and finding out that it costs £42 to, to send it to them. Uh, I think most of my work is done at this stage. We can start looking at uh, Volume 3. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I've already actually, to be honest, I've actually got about six artists who couldn't be involved in Volume 2 but really wanted to be part of it and said, right, just contact me straight away for Volume 3. So we're already uh, winding up Volume 3. <laughs> Do you know what, um, that's like, see, what's really good about it is, you know, you, you kind of get your first one out, you know, and it really comes out very quiet, but like the, the buzz now surrounding Volume 2, do you know I mean, like say from the authors, uh, honestly, every other week, Jeff Carlson's on the phone, when's it coming out? Who's the other author? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like... Well, it's, it's when my, it was January or February when I started sending out emails to the artists uh, saying, oh yeah, it'll be out soon enough. And you know, by the time like I, I was giving them their deadline for the end of May, you know, maybe the beginning of June, thinking that we'd be having a, a, a end of August, September release, and then it kept on. You know, the, the release 
they kept on escaping and being further away. So I'd been hassling all the artists saying, you got to get this work in for me next week if we go to print. And that's like four or five months ago. And, you know, I'm terribly embarrassed over that. But we got all the work in. I wasn't waiting on anybody. Uh, so maybe fake deadlines are the way to go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, D, honestly, I can't thank you enough for that. Honestly, because I'd like to say, I've got a copy here of the plain paperback. No extras or anything like that. But it's just gorgeous. Do you know what I mean? It's... I mean, it's like what have I done? Do you know what I mean? It's it's got my name on the front, but bloody hell, it shouldn't have it. You that's put all this together, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, it's a it's a, it's a chunky book. Like oh, it's it about, about about three quarters of an inch, an inch thick or something. How, how many pages with the extras? It's over, I think with the extras, it's well over three hundred pages. Oh. And if you think that uh, volume one, I think was was just under two hundred. So you know, it's 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 a third bigger or a half size bigger than than uh, volume one was. Uh, so it's a, you know, again, nice addition to your sci-fi collection. Certainly is. Well, D, honestly, you t- you just rest that arm, get re- you know, because we don't want any glue smudges on the pages when you stick. Uh, well, you know, I, I can get the kids uh, the kids to to do it for me. I give them a a, a print stick and. Uh, and uh, scissors and let them do the work for me. <laughs> D, honestly, thank you so much. Well, look, I'm sure we'll meet, get, get to meet up in Reno next year. <laughs> Take care. Right. Listen, D, you get yourself sorted out. 10-10-2010. <laughs> next up is Film Talk by Rod Barnett. Rod. Hello, everybody. A couple of months ago, the big news that came out for DVD aficionados was that, finally, the Star Wars movies were being announced to come out on Blu-ray sometime next year. Now, this would have really thrilled me if, say, this were ten years ago. Don't cloud things by telling me that Blu-ray didn't exist ten years ago. I know this. I'm just trying to explain to you that my enthusiasm for the Star Wars films has uh, waned appreciably since... uh, Well, the prequel movies. As a matter of fact, the special editions didn't do much for my enthusiasm for the films either. And in all honesty, watching what George Lucas has done to the Star Wars movies over the past several years has really kind of ended my thrillosity with that particular franchise. But the real news, the news that thrilled a weirdo like me, is that just this past week on DVD and Blu-ray is the glorious film Star Crash. Now, you may ask, what is this star crash you speak of, Rod? Tell us. Tell us what it is. Well, that's why I'm here. Star crash is, well, perhaps I should back up. You see, among my friends, I've developed a reputation over the years as a kind of brave explorer of bad cinema. Reports of a film's lack of quality will make me seek out the offending movie more strongly than good reviews will ever really affect me. I've never been sure if this sad character flaw is simple mad curiosity or a slightly suppressed masochistic streak. I gave up fighting it years ago, and I've been wallowing in it ever since. If this is my curse, then, well, so be it. So, in my role as a guide through the battlefield of terrible movies, please let me throw myself on this glorious, wonderful celluloid hand grenade. Now, when I watch a film with as bad a reputation as Star Crash, part of me hopes for a hidden alternative classic, as I'll call it. A film kind of like, say, Plan 9 from Outer Space or Robot Monster. You know, a, a film that's undeniably awful, but 
is so wonderfully awful that it kind of circles itself, swallows its own tail, and becomes incredibly entertaining by virtue of its awfulness. But another part of me hopes for a kind of wretched, soul-deadening experience, the, the kind of horrendously bad movie that causes me to seek solace in drink or charity work. You know, kind of like Von Helsing. Luckily, Star Crash doesn't fall into the Von Helsing category. This movie is glorious. It's beautiful. I cannot imagine a real science fiction film fan not finding a way to enjoy this crazy movie. Make no mistake about one thing. Screenwriter and director Luigi Cozy is a big fan of science fiction. The first image in this wannabe epic is of a spaceship named after Golden Age sci-fi author Murray Lannister, and the first bit of dialogue is a page over that ship's intercom asking Major Bradbury to come to the communications bridge. Hint, hint. Kazi is such a fan of this genre that when possible, he slips science fiction elements into any movie he can. This is the only explanation for the incredibly odd mechanical creatures and bizarre conversations about scientific theory in his two Hercules films that he made with Lou Ferrigno a few years after this. I can only imagine the man's joy when the huge global success of Star Wars gave him the green light to make his pet sci-fi project. I've often heard Star Crash called a rip-off of Star Wars, but from what I've learned, it appears that the script was written long before Mr. Lucas made the genre profitable. Cozy just got lucky. At least, that's the story he tells. I think the unlucky folks were probably the poor suckers in 1978 who were conned into seeing this film in theaters thinking that it had something to do with Star Wars. I know of at least one man who claims that not only is Star Crash the worst film he's ever seen, but that it may have contributed to his desire to kill small woodland creatures in the dead of night. Ah, but how to explain this film? Let me see, let me see. As with most of Luigi Cozy's films... The plot is a mishmash of half-thought-out ideas and half-remembered moments from movie serials, novels, comic books, what have you. The story concerns the adventures of interstellar smuggler Stella Starr, played by the ever-gorgeous and curvaceous Carolyn Monroe, and her partner in crime, Acton, played by Marjo Goitner, who somehow got top billing in this film. I really don't understand how an ex-minister gets spilling over Carolyn Monroe. Nevertheless, as the film begins, they are being pursued by law officers Thor and Ella, a sentient robot voiced by Hamilton Camp as some kind of Texas moron. After making their escape through hyperspace, they stumble across an abandoned spacecraft. After rescuing a survivor from that ship, they're captured by the pursuing cops and carried off to prison. Stella is forced to feed the radium furnaces in a skimpy outfit and high heels until she's recruited for a job by the same two cops that caught her. It seems that the Emperor of the Universe, played by a slumming Christopher Plummer, wants her and Acton to help fight the evil Count Zarth Arn. This dastardly despot has created a devastating planet-sized weapon that will allow him to rule the universe! but uh, no one knows where it's located. The smugglers will accompany Thor and Ella on their search through the haunted stars, and if they succeed, they will be pardoned. Oh, uh, and if they should uh, run across the Emperor's son, that would be the Crown Prince, they should, uh, they should grab him and bring him back, too. He was sent looking for this Death Star, I mean, uh, the Count's massive weapon, and he's gone missing. 
So off they go, tramping from one silly place to another, hunting for the bad guys. The only stop of any real interest, for me anyway, is when a bikini-clad Stella has to fight off a group of hot Amazon-style women before they sick their giant, poorly-stop-motion animated robot on her. Acton reveals that he can see into the future, fake his own death, and whip ass with his handy lightsaber... uh, well, okay, laser sword. Actually, they don't even call it a laser sword. They don't even talk about the thing that he uses that's so obviously a lightsaber, but... It doesn't matter. Finally, of course, they they find Prince Simon. That's the uh, the crown prince who went missing. And he's played by David Hasselhoff. Boy, there's a weird one for you. They find him. They find the correct planet. They blow up the terrible weapon. And then they rush back to the Emperor to join in the gloriously insane final battle with Zarth Arn to rid the universe of his evil power forever. Now, um... I've left out a lot of details, mainly because, for for just sanity, I have to. This movie's script is an insane mess. And it feels like it was assembled in the dark from ideas jotted randomly on post-it notes. There is no logical progression from scene to scene or from idea to idea. When an explanation or solution was needed, Cozy just seems to have inserted a line of ridiculous dialogue, had the characters smile at each other, and just kept things moving. And some of the lines are priceless. Informing Stella that he can't tell her about the future because she might try to change things, Acton declares with a straight face, because that's against the law. Early on, a character declares, Scan it with our computer waves! So, you kind of get the idea. If an eight-year-old riffed on an old issue of EC Comics' Weird Science, Star Crash is exactly what his Pixie Sticks-fueled imagination would create. Luigi Cozy is that sugar-rushing kid bursting with enthusiasm, but short on talent and money. He throws in a lot of references to classic science fiction movies, including the disembodied head that leads the invaders from Mars, the radium furnaces from the Flash Gordon serials, and, I swear to you, a nod to the giant floating stone head from Zardoz. But even these bizarre touches are topped by the sight of all the male characters wearing enough makeup to pass for drag queens. Hasselhoff is wearing so much rouge that it looks like his cheeks are sunburned. This is top-of-the-line crazy cinema. Almost nothing is done well, but eventually the complete lack of sense is kind of mesmerizing. It's like watching slow-motion car footage of crash tests, and I find it kind of impossible to turn away, you know, wondering if the next ludicrous idea was going to make me laugh or roll my eyes. It's an amazing experience, and if you've never had it, now is the time. Buy or rent. Buy it. Trust me, you're going to want to watch all the extras. Star Crash. Trust me, folks. It's insane. It's ludicrous. It is absolutely a -a one-of-a-kind experience. And what more can you say about something that you're going to enjoy other than there's no way you're going to be able to keep that grin off of your face? Thank you, folks, and we'll talk to you again soon. As ever, sir, thank you so much. Next we come up to the main fiction, and it's a big, nice, long one. Five Thrillers by Robert Reed. We've played a story by Robert Reed once before, Roxy. I'll give you a heads up about Robert Reed. 
Robert David Reed, born October 1956, is Hugo Award-winning American science fiction author. He has a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Nebraska University. He is a prolific and, wow, has he got some short stories under his belt. He's wrote over 140 published stories and his works appeared in Asimov's Fantasy and Science Fiction and Science Fiction, the old website over there. You can actually still find an archive of that if anyone wants to kind of dig around. It's a great site. I'm there looking quite often for stories. He's won the Hugo Award for Best Novella in 2007 for A Billion Eves. She Sees My Monsters Now was a 2002 Asimov Science Fiction Reader's Poll Short Story Award. Alistair Reynolds' series of Sister Ice, a novel by Robert Reed. Wonderful far future science fiction of one of the best kind, imaginative, epic and mind-blowing. There you go, doesn't get much better praise from Alistair Reynolds than that. It is narrated by our fantastic Mike Boris. Go over there to Mike Boris Audio and say hello. This guy is an amazing narrator. Mike, I could give you a big hug, sir. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present. Five Thrillers by Robert Reed. One, The Ill-Fated Mission. Their situation was dire. A chunk of primordial iron had slashed its way through the demon dandy, crippling the engines and pushing life support to the brink of failure. Even worse, a shotgun blast of shrapnel had shredded one of the ship's two life pods. The mission engineer, a glum little fellow who had spent twenty years mining earth-grazing asteroids, studied the wreckage with an expert eye. There was no sane reason to hope that repairs could be made in time, but on the principle of keeping his staff busy, he ordered the robots and his new assistant to continue their work on the useless pod. Then, after investing a few moments cursing God and luck, the engineer dragged himself to the remnants of the bridge to meet with the dandy's beleaguered captain. His assistant was a young fellow named Joseph Carraway. Handsome as a digital hero, with green eyes and an abundance of curly blonde hair, Joe was in his early twenties, born to wealthy parents who had endowed their only child with the earliest crop of synthetic human genes. He was a tall, tidy fellow, and he was a gifted athlete as graceful as any dancer, on earth or in freefall. According to a dozen respected scales, Joe was also quite intelligent. With an impressed shake of the head, the company psychiatrist had confided that his bountiful talents made him suitable for many kinds of work. But by the same token, the supercharged brain carried certain inherent risks. Dipping his head in the most charming fashion, he said, Risks? And I think you know what I'm talking about she remarked, showing a wary, somewhat flirtatious smile. But I don't know, Joe lied. And I believe you do, she countered. Without exception, Mr. Carraway, you have been telling me exactly what I want to hear. And you're very believable, I should add. If I hadn't run the T-scan during our interview, I might have come away believing that you are the most kind, most decent gentleman in the world. But I am decent, he argued. Joe sounded and looked exceptionally earnest. The psychiatrist laughed. A woman in her early fifties, she was an overqualified professional doing routine tasks for a corporation larger and more powerful than most nations. The solar system was being opened to humanity, humanity in all of its forms, old and new. Her only task was to find qualified bodies to do exceptionally dangerous work. The vagaries of this young man's psyche were factors in her assessment, but they weren't the final word. After a moment's reflection, she said, God, the thing is, you're beautiful. Joe smiled and said, thank you. 
Then, with natural smoothness, he added, "'And you are an exceptionally lovely woman.' She laughed loudly and with a trace of despair, as if aware that she would never again hear such kind words from a young man. Joe leaned forward, and, wearing the perfect smile, a strong winning grin, he told the psychiatrist, "'I am a very good person.' "'No,' she said. "'No, Joe, you are not.' Then she sat back in her chair, and with a finger twirling her mousy brown hair, she confessed, "'But, dear God, my boy, I really would just love to have you for dinner.' That was five months ago, and now Joe was on board a ship that had been devastated by a mindless piece of iron. As soon as the engineer left for the bridge, Joe kicked away from the battered escape pod. Both robots quietly reminded him of their orders. Dereliction of duty would leave a black mark on the mission report. But their assignment had no purpose except to keep them busy and Joe distracted. And since arguing with machines served no role, he said nothing, focusing on the only rational course available to him. The comm line to the bridge was locked, but that was a puzzle easily solved. For the next few minutes, Joe concentrated on a very miserable conversation between the ship's top officers. The best launch window was only a little more than three hours from now. The surviving pod had finite fuel and oxygen. Kilograms and the time demanded by any return voyage were the main problem. Thirty precious seconds were wasted when the captain announced that she would remain behind, forcing the engineer to point out that she was a small person, which meant they would need to find another thirty kilos of mass, at the very least. Of course, both officers could play the hero role, sacrificing themselves to save their crew, but neither mentioned what was painfully obvious. Instead, what mattered was the naming and discarding of a string of increasingly unworkable fixes. Their conversation stopped when Joe drifted into the bridge. "'I've got two options for you,' he announced. "'And when it comes down to it, you'll take my second solution.' The captain glanced at her engineer as if to ask, "'Should we listen to this kid?' In despair, the engineer said, "'Tell us, Joe, quick!' The fairest answer? "'We chop off everybody's arms and legs.' He smiled and dipped his head as he spoke, pretending to be squeamish. We use the big field laser, since that should cauterize the wounds. Then our robots dope everybody up and shove us on board the pod, with the robots remaining behind, of course. Neither officer had considered saving their machines. We chop off our own arms, the engineer whined, and our legs, too. Prosthetics do wonders, Joe pointed out, or the company can grow us new limbs. They won't match the originals, but they'll be workable enough. The officers traded nervous looks. "'What else do you have?' the captain asked. "'One crew member remains behind.' "'We've considered that,' the engineer warned. "'But there's no decent way to decide who stays and who goes.' Two of us have enough mass,' Joe pointed out. "'If either one stays, everyone else escapes.' At six foot and ninety kilos, Joe was easily the largest crewman. "'So you're volunteering?' asked the captain, hope brightening her tiny brown face. Joe said, no, with a flat, unaffected voice. I'm sorry, did I say anything about volunteers? Suddenly the only sound was a thin wind caused by a spaceship suffering a thousand tiny leaks. One person among the crew was almost as big as Joe. The engineer whispered, Danielle. Both officers winced. Their colleague was an excellent worker and a dear friend, and Danielle also happened to be attractive and popular. Try as they might, they couldn't accept the idea that they would leave her behind, and without her blessing at that. Joe had anticipated their response. But if you had a choice between her and me, you'd happily abandon me, is that right?
They didn't answer. But Joe was new to the crew, and when their eyes dropped, they were clearly saying yes. He took no offense. With a shrug and a sigh, Joe gave his audience time enough to feel ashamed, and then he looked at the captain, asking, What about Barnes? He's only ten, maybe eleven kilos lighter than me. That name caused a brief exchange of glances. What are you planning? asked the engineer. Joe didn't respond. No, the captain told him. No? asked Joe. No to what? Neither would confess what they were imagining. Then Joe put on a horrified expression. Oh, God, he said. Do you really believe I would consider that? The engineer defended himself with soft mutters. Joe's horror dissolved into a piercing stare. There are codes for that sort of thing, the captain reminded everybody, including herself. Commit violence against a fellow crew member. I don't care who it is, and you won't come home with us, Mr. Carraway. Is that clear enough for you to understand? Joe let her fume, and then with a sly smile he said, I'm sorry. I thought we wanted the best way to save as many lives as possible. Again the officers glanced at each other. The young man laughed in a charming but very chilly fashion, a moment that always made empathic souls uneasy. Let's return to my first plan, he said. Order everybody into the machine shop, and we'll start carving off body parts. The captain said, no, and then looked for a good reason. The engineer just shrugged, laughing nervously. We don't know if that would work, the captain decided. People could be killed by the trauma. And what if we had to fly the pod manually, the engineer asked. Without hands, we're just cargo. An awful option had been excluded, and they could relax slightly. Okay, said Joe. This is what I'm going to do. I'll go talk to Barnes. Give me a few minutes, and if I don't get what we want, then I will stay behind. You, the captain said hopefully. Joe offered a firm, trustworthy, sure. But when he tallied up everyone's mass, the engineer found trouble. Even with Barnes gone, we're still five kilos past our limit, and I'd like to give us a bigger margin for error if I can. So, said Joe, the rest of us give blood. The captain stared at this odd young man, studying that dense blonde hair and those bright hazel eyes. Blood, Joe repeated, as much as we can physically manage, and we can also enjoy a big chemically induced shit before leaving this wreck. The engineer began massaging the numbers. Joe matter-of-factly dangled his leg between the officers. And if we're pressed, I guess I could surrender one of these boys. My guess is that it won't come to that. And in the end, it did not. Three weeks later, Joe Carrier was sitting in the psychiatrist's office, calmly discussing the tragedy. I've read everyone's report, she admitted. He nodded, and he smiled. Unlike their last meeting, the woman was striving to maintain a strict professional distance. She couldn't have foreseen what would happen to the dandy demon or how this employee would respond, but there was the possibility that blame would eventually settle on her, and to save her own flesh, she was determined to learn exactly what Joe and the officers had decided on the bridge. Does your face hurt? she inquired. A little bit. How many times did he strike you? Ten, Joe guessed, maybe more. She winced. The weapon? A rough piece of iron, he said. Barnes had a souvenir from the first asteroid he helped work. Infrared sensors and the hidden T-scanner were observing the suspect closely. Examining the telemetry, she asked, Why did you pick Mr. Barnes? That's in my report. Remind me, Joe. What were your reasons? He was big enough to matter. And what did the others think about the man? You mean the crew? Joe shrugged. He was one of us. Maybe he was quiet and kept to himself. Bullshit. When he wanted, Joe could produce a shy, boyish grin. 
He was different from the rest of you, the psychiatrist pointed out, and I'm not talking about his personality. You're not, Joe agreed. She produced images of the dead man. The oldest photograph showed a skinny, homely male in his mid-twenties, while the most recent example presented a face that was turning fat, a normal consequence that came with the most intrusive, all-encompassing genetic surgery. Your colleague was midway through some very radical genetic surgery. He was, Joe agreed. He belonged to the rebirth movement. I'm sorry, what does that have to do with anything? Joe's tone was serious, perhaps even offended. Everybody is human, even if they aren't sapiens anymore. Isn't that the way our laws are written? You knew exactly what you were doing, Joe. He didn't answer. You selected Barnes. You picked him because you understood that nobody would stand in your way. Joe's only response was the trace of a grin at the corners of his mouth. Where did you meet with Barnes? In his cabin. And what did you say to him? That I loved him, Joe explained. I told him that I was envious of his courage and his vision. Leaving our old species was noble, was good. I thought that he was intriguing and very beautiful. I told him that to save his important life, as well as everyone else, I was going to sacrifice myself. I was staying behind with the robots. You lied to him. Except Barnes believed me. Are you sure? Yes. When you told him you loved him, did you believe he was gay? He wasn't. But if he had been, what would you have done if he was flattered by your advances? Oh, I could have played that game, too. The psychiatrist hesitated. What do you mean? If Barnes preferred guys, then I would have seduced him. If I thought there was enough time, I mean. I would have convinced him to remain behind and save my life. Really, the guy was pretty easy to manipulate, all in all. It wouldn't have taken much to convince him that being the hero was his idea in the first place. You could have managed all that. Joe considered hard before saying, If I'd had a few days to work with, sure, easy. But you're probably right, a couple hours wasn't enough time. The psychiatrist stopped watching the telemetry, preferring to stare at the creature sitting across from her. Quietly, she said, Okay. Joe waited patiently. What did Mr. Barnes say to you? she asked. After you professed your love, how did he react? You're lying. Joe didn't just quote the man, but he sounded like him, too. The voice was thick and a little slow, wrapped around the vocal cords that were slowly changing their configuration. You slept with every damn woman on this ship, he told me, except our dyke captain. The psychiatrist's face stiffened slightly. Is that true? she muttered. Joe gave her a moment. Is what true? Never mind. She found a new subject to pursue. Mr. Barnes' cabin was small, wasn't it? Same as everybody's. And you were at opposite ends of the room, is that right? Yes. By birth, Barnes was a small man, but his rebirth had given him temporary layers of fat that would have eventually been transformed into new tissues and bones, and even two extra fingers on each of his long, lovely hands. The air inside that cubbyhole had smelled of biology, raw and distinctly strange, but it wasn't an unpleasant odor. Barnes had been drifting beside his bed, and next to him was the image of the creature he wanted to become, a powerful, fur-draped entity with huge golden eyes and a predator's toothy grin. The cabin walls were covered with his possessions, each lashed in place to keep them out of the way. And on the surface of what was arbitrarily considered to be the ceiling, Barnes had painted the motto of the rebirth movement, To be truly human is to be different. Do you want to know what I told him? asked Joe. I didn't put this into my report, but after he claimed I was sleeping with those women, 
Do you know what I said that got him to start pounding on me? The psychiatrist offered a tiny, almost invisible nod. I said, I'm just playing with those silly bitches. They're toys to me. But you, you're nothing like them, or like me. You're going to be a spectacular creature, a vision of the future, you lucky shit. And before I die, please let me blow you, just to get the taste of another species. She sighed, all right. And that's when I reached for him. You're heterosexual, she complained. I was saving lives, Joe responded. You were saving your own life. And plenty of others, too, he pointed out. Then with a grin, he added, You don't appreciate what I was prepared to do, Doctor. If it meant saving the rest of us, I was capable of anything. She once believed that she understood Joe Carraway, but in every possible way she had underestimated the man sitting before her, including his innate capacity to measure everybody else's nature. The crew was waiting in the passageway outside, he mentioned. With the captain and engineer, they were crowding in close, listening close, trying to hear what would happen. All these good, decent souls holding their breaths, wondering if I could pull this trick off. She nodded again. They heard the fight, but it took them a couple minutes to force the door's lock. And when they got inside, they found Barnes all over me and that lump of iron in his hand. Joe paused before asking, Do you know how blood looks in space? It forms a thick mist of bright red drops that drift everywhere, sticking to every surface. Did Mr. Barnes strike you? Joe hesitated impressed enough to show her an appreciative smile. What does it say in my report? But it seems to me, her voice trailed off, maybe you were being honest with me, Joe, when you swore that you would have done anything to save yourself. I should have believed you. So I have to wonder now, what if you grabbed that piece of asteroid and turned it on yourself? Mr. Barnes would have been surprised. For a minute or so, he might have been too stunned to do anything but to watch you strike yourself in the face. Then he heard the others breaking in, and he naturally kicked over to you and pulled the weapon from your hand. Now why would I admit to any of that, Joe replied. Then he shrugged, adding, But really, when you get down to it, the logistics of what happened aren't important. What matters is that I gave the captain a very good excuse to lock that man up, which was how she cleared her conscience before we could abandon ship. The captain doesn't look at this as an excuse, the psychiatrist said. No? Barnes was violent, and our conscience rests easy. Joe asked, Who ordered every comm system destroyed before we abandoned the demon dandy? Who left poor Barnes with no way even to call home? Except by then, your colleague was a prisoner, and according to our corporate laws, the captain was obligated to silence the criminal to any potential lawsuits. The woman kept her gaze on Joe. Somebody had to be left behind, and in the captain's mind, you weren't as guilty as Mr. Barnes. I hope not. But nobody was half as cold or a tenth as ruthless as you were, Joe. His expression was untroubled, even serene. The captain understands what you are, but in the end she had no choice but to leave the other man behind. Joe laughed. Human or not, Barnes wasn't a very good person. He was mean-spirited and distant. And even if nobody admits it, I promise you, nobody on the ship lost two seconds sleep over what happened there. The psychiatrist nearly spoke, then hesitated. Joe leaned forward. Do you know how it is, doctor, when you're a kid, and there's something that you think you're pretty good at? I mean, maybe you're the best on your street or the best at school, but you never know how good you really are, not until you get out into the big world and see what other people can do. And in the end, we aren't all that special, not extra clever or pretty or strong. But for a few of us, a very few... There comes a special day when we realize that we aren't just a little good at something. We are great, 
better than anybody ever, maybe. Do you know how that feels, ma'am? She sighed deeply, painfully. What are you telling me, Joe? He leans back in his chair, absently scratching at the biggest bandage on his iron-battered face. I'm telling you that I am excellent at sizing people up, even better than you, and I think you're beginning to appreciate that. But what you call being a borderline psychopath is to me just another part of my bigger, more important talent. Well, you're not borderline anything, she said. He took no offense from that implication. Here's what we can learn from this particular mess. Most people are secretly bad. Under proper circumstances, they will gladly turn on one of their own and feel nothing but good about it afterward. But when the stakes are high and the world's going to shit, I can see exactly what needs to be done. Unlike everybody else, I will do the dirtiest work, which is a rare and rich and remarkable gift, I think. She took a breath. Why are you telling me this, Joe? Because I don't want to be a mechanic riding clunky spaceships, he confessed. And I want your help, Doctor, all right? Will you find me new work? Something that's closer to my talents, closer to my heart? Would you do that for me, pretty lady? Two, Natural Killer At four in the morning, the animals slept, which was only reasonable since this was a zoo populated entirely by synthetic organisms. Patrons didn't pay for glimpses of furry lumps, formerly wild and now slumbering in some shady corner. What they wanted were spectacular, one-of-a-kind organisms doing breathtaking feats and doing them in daylight. But high metabolisms had their costs, and that's why the creatures now lay in their cages and grottos, inside glass boxes and private ponds, beautiful eyes closed while young minds dreamed about who could say what. For the moment, privacy was guaranteed, and that was one fine reason why desperate men would agree to meet in that public place. Slipping into the zoo unseen brought a certain ironic pleasure, too. But perhaps the most important, at least for Joe, were the possibilities inherent with that unique realm. A loud, faintly musical voice said, Stop, Mr. Carraway. Stop where you are, sir. And now please lift your arms for us and dance in a very slow circle. Joe was in his middle thirties. His rigorously trained body was clad in casual white slacks and a new gray shirt. His face had retained its boyish beauty, a prominent scar creasing the broad forehead and a several-day growth of beard lending a rough, faintly threadbare quality to his otherwise immaculate appearance. Arms up, he looked rather tired. As he turned slowly, he took deep breaths, allowing several flavors of radiation to wash across his body, reaching into his bones. "'I see three weapons,' the voice came from no particular direction. One at a time, please. Lower the weapons and kick each of them toward the fountain, if you will, Mr. Carraway. A passing shower had left the plaza wet and slick. Joe dropped the Ethiopian machine pistol first, then followed the matching glocks. Each time he kicked one of the guns, it would spin and skate across the red bricks, each one ending up within a hand's length of the fountain. An astonishing feat, considering the stakes and his own level of exhaustion. Unarmed, Joe stood alone in the empty plaza. The fountain had a round, black granite base, buried pumps shoving water up against a perfect sphere of transparent crystal. The sphere was a monstrous, stylized egg. Inside the egg rode a never-to-be-born creature, some giant beast with wide black eyes and gill slits, its tail half-formed and the stubby little limbs looking as though they could turn into arms or legs or even tentacles. Joe knew the creature was supposed to be blind, but he couldn't shake the impression that the eyes were watching him. 
He watched the creature slowly roll over and over again, its eggs suspended on nothing but a thin, chilled layer of very busy water. Eventually five shapes emerged from behind the fountain. "'Thank you, Mr. Carraway,' said the voice. Then the sound system was deactivated, and with a hand to the mouth, one figure shouted, "'A little closer, sir, if you will.' That familiar voice accompanied the beckoning arm. Two figures efficiently disabled Joe's weapons— they were big men, probably rebirth Neanderthals or some variation on that popular theme. A third man looked like a brilliance boy, his skull tall and deep, stuffed full with a staggering amount of brain tissue. The fourth human was small and slight, held securely by the brilliance boy. Even at a distance, she looked decidedly female. Joe took two steps and paused. The fifth figure, the one that spoke, approached near enough to show his face. Joe wasn't surprised, but he pretended to be. Markle? What are you doing here? He laughed as if nervous. You're not one of them, are you? The man looked as sapien as Joe. With a decidedly human laugh, Markle remarked, I'm glad to hear you were fooled, Mr. Carraway, which of course means that you killed Stanton and Humphrey for no good reason. Joe said nothing. You did come here alone, didn't you? Because you took a little longer than I anticipated. No, I didn't. Perhaps not. I could be mistaken. Markle never admitted to errors. He was a tall fellow, as bald as an egg and not particularly handsome, which made his disguise all the more effective. The new homo species were always physically attractive, and they were superior athletes, more often than not. Joe had never before met a rebirth who had gone through the pain and expense and then not bothered to grow some kind of luxurious head of hair as a consequence. You have my vial with you, Joseph, yes? Joe, that's my name. He made a show of patting his chest pocket. And these sealed recordings, too? Everything you asked for. Joe looked past Markle. Is that the girl? Something about the question amused Markle. Do you honestly care if she is? Of course I care. Enough to trade away everything and earn her safety? Joe said nothing. I've studied your files, Joseph. I have read the personality evaluations, and I know all about your corporate security work, and even all those wicked sealed records covering the last three years. It is a most impressive career. But nothing about you, sir, nothing in your nature or your history, strikes me as being sentimental. And I cannot believe that this girl matters enough to convince you to make this exchange. Joe smiled. Then why did I come here? Well, that's my question, too. Joe waited for a moment, then suggested, "'Maybe it's money?' "'Psychopaths always have a price,' Marco replied. "'Yes, I guessed it would be something along those lines.' Joe reached into his shirt pocket. The vial was diamond, smaller than a pen, and only halfway filled with what looked like to be a plain white powder. But embossed along the vial's length were the ominous words, "'Natural Killer.' "'How much do you want for my baby, Joseph?' Everything, he said. And what does that mean? All the money. My wealth? Is that what you're asking for? I'm not asking, Joe said. But don't be confused, Markle. This is not a negotiation. I am demanding that you and your backers give me every last cent in your coffers. And if not, I will ruin everything that you've worked to achieve, you sons of bitches. Markle had been born sapien and gifted and his minimal and very secret steps to leave his species behind had served to increase both his mind and his capacity for arrogance, 
but he was stunned to hear that ultimatum. To make such outrageous demands, and in these circumstances. He couldn't imagine anybody with that much gall. Standing quite still, his long arms at his side, Markle tried to understand why an unarmed man, in these desperate circumstances, would have any power over him. What wasn't he seeing? No reinforcements were coming, he was certain about that. Outside this tiny circle, nobody knew anything. This sapien was bluffing, Markle decided. And with that, he began to breathe again. And he relaxed, announcing, You're right. This is not a negotiation. And I'm telling you, no. Inside the same shirt pocket was a child's toy. A completely harmless lump of luminescent putty stolen from a passing gift bot. Joe shoved the vial into the bright red plaything. And before Markle could react, he flung both the putty and the vial high into the air. Every eye watched that ruddy patch of light twirl and soften, and then plunge back to the earth. Beside the plaza was a deep, acid-filled moat flanked by a pair of high fences, electrified and bristling with sensors, and on the far side were woods and darkness, plus the single example of a brand new species designed to bring huge crowd through the zoo's front gate, the Grendel. You should not have done that, Markle said in a low, furious voice. I'll just have you killed now and be done with you. Joe smiled, lifting his empty hands over his head. Maybe you should kill me, if you're so positive that you can get your precious killer back. That's when Joe laughed at the brilliant bastard. But it was the girl who reacted first, squirming out of the brilliant boy's hands to run straight for her lover. No one bothered to chase her down. She stopped short and slapped Joe. You idiot, she spat. He answered her with a tidy left hook. Then one of the big soldiers shot a tacky round into Joe's chest, pumping in enough current to drop him on the wet bricks, leaving him hovering between consciousness and white-hot misery. "'You idiot!' the girl repeated herself several times, occasionally adding a dismissive moron or fool to her invectives. Then, as the electricity diminished, she leaned close to his face. "'Don't you understand? We were never going to use the bug. We don't want to let it loose. It's just one more way to make sure you sapiens won't declare war on us.' Natural killer is our insurance policy, and that's it. The pain diminished to a lasting ache. Wincing, Joe struggled to sit up. While he was down, smart cuffs had wrapped themselves around his wrists and ankles. The two soldiers and the brilliance boy were standing before the Grindel's large enclosure. They had donned night goggles and were studying the schematics of the zoo, tense voices discussing how best to slip into the cage and recover the prize. Joe, she said, how can you be this stupid? comes naturally, I guess. To the eye, the girl was beautiful and purely sapien. The long black hair and rich brown skin sparkled in the plaza's light. The world natural was a mild insult among the rebirths. She sat up, lips pouting. Like Markle, the young woman must have endured major revisions of her genetics, far more involved than a few synthetic genes sprinkled about the DNA. Extra pairs of chromosomes were standard among the new humans, but despite rumors that some of the rebirths were hiding among the naturals, this was the first time Joe had knowingly crossed paths with them. I am stupid, he admitted, and then he looked at Markle, adding, Both of you had me fooled, all alone. That was a lie, but it made Markle smile. Of course he was clever, and of course no one suspected the truth. Behind that grim old face was enough self-esteem to keep him believing that he would survive the night. The idiot. Markle and his beautiful assistant glanced at each other. Then the brilliance boy called out, We'll use the service entrance to get in, he announced. Five minutes to circumvent locks and cameras, I should think. Do it, Markle told them.
You'll be all right here? The scientist lifted a pistol over his head. We're fine. Just go. Get my child out of that cage now. That left three people on the plaza, plus the monster locked inside the slowly revolving crystal egg. The plague is just an insurance policy, huh? Joe threw out the question and waited. After a minute, the girl said, To protect us from people like you, yes. He put on an injured expression. Like me? What does that mean? She glanced at Markle. In an acid tone, she said, He showed me your history, Joe, after our first night together. And what did it tell you? When you were on the Demon Dandy, you saved yourself by leaving a rebirth behind, and you did it in a cold, calculating way. He shrugged, smiled. What else? After joining the security arm of the corporation, you distinguished yourself as a soldier. Then you went to work for the UN as a contractor, and your expertise has been assassinations. Bad men should be killed, Joe said flatly. Evil should be removed from the world. Get the average person to be honest, and he'll admit that he won't lose any sleep, particularly if the monster is killed with a single clean shot. You are horrible, she maintained. If I'm so horrible, said Joe, then do the world a favor. Shoot me in the head. She began to reach behind her back, then thought better of it. Markle glanced at both of them, pulling his weapon closer to his body. But nothing seemed urgent, and he returned to keeping watch over the Grendel's enclosure. I suppose you noticed, Joe began. The girl blinked. Noticed what? In my career, I've killed a respectable number of rebirths. The dark eyes stared at him. Very quietly, with sarcasm, she said, I suppose they were all bad people. Drug lords and terrorists are hired guns in the service of either. Joe shook his head, saying, Legal murder is easy, clean, clear-cut. A whole lot more pleasant than the last few weeks have been, I'll admit. Marco looked at him. I am curious, Joseph. Who decided you were the ideal person to investigate our little laboratory? You don't have a little lab, said Joe. There aren't ten or twelve better equipped facilities when it comes to high-end genetic research. There aren't even twelve, the man said, bristling slightly. Perhaps two or three. Well, you wouldn't have found this item in any official file, Joe said. But a couple of months ago, I was leading a team to hit a terror cell in Alberta. Under interrogation, the rebirth boss started making threats about unleashing something called natural killer on us, on the poor helpless sapiens. He claimed that we'd be wiped out of existence, and the new species could then take over, which is their right, he claimed, and as inevitable as the next sunrise. His audience exchanged looks. But that hardly explains how you found your way to me, Markle pointed out. There was a trail, bloody in places, but every corpse pointing in your general direction. Markle almost spoke, but the creak of a heavy door being opened interrupted him. Somewhere in the back of the Grendel's enclosure, three pairs of goggled eyes were peering out into the jungle in shadow. It's an amazing disease, Joe stated. Natural killer is. Quiet, Markle warned. But the girl couldn't contain herself. She bent low, whispering, It is, while trying to burn him with her hateful smile. The virus targets old, outmoded stretches of the human genome, Joe continued. From what I can tell, and I'm no expert in biology, of course, but your extra genes guarantee you won't get anything worse than some wicked flu symptoms out of the bug. Is that about right? A tailored poxphage, she said, rapidly mutating but always fatal to sapien's genome. So who dreamed up the name? Joe glanced at Markle and then winked at her. It was you, wasn't it? She sat back, grinning. And it's going to save you from bastards like me, is it? 
You won't dare lift a hand against us, she told Joe. As soon as you realize we have this weapon and that it could conceivably wipe your entire species off the face of the earth. Smart, he agreed. Very smart. From the Grendel enclosure came a sharp, soft noise of a gun firing. One quick burst and then two single shots from the same weapon. Then silence. Marco lifted his pistol reflexively. So when do you rebirths make your official announcement? Joe asked. And how do you handle this kind of event? Hold a news conference? Unless you decide on a demonstration, I suppose. I mean, you know, murder an isolated village or devastate one of the orbital communities. Just to prove to the idiots in the world that you can deliver on your threats. A voice called from the enclosure. I have it! Joe turned in time to see the reddish glow rise off the ground, partly obscured by a strong hand holding it. But as the arm cocked, ready to throw the prize back into the plaza, there was a grunt, almost too soft to be heard. A terrific amount of violence occurred in an instant, without fuss. Then the red glow appeared on a different portion of the jungle floor. The only sound was the slow lapping of a broad, happy tongue. Markle cursed. The girl stood up and looked. Markle called out a name, and nobody answered. And then somebody else fired their weapon in a spray pattern, cutting vegetation and battering the high fence on the far side of the moat. I killed it, the second soldier declared. I'm sure. The brilliance boy offered a few cautionary words. I do feel exceptionally stupid, Joe said. Tell me again, why exactly do you need natural killer? The girl stared at him and then stepped back. I didn't know we were waging a real war against you people, he continued. I guess we keep that a secret, what with our political tricks and PR campaigns, like when we grant you full citizenship, and the way we force you to accept the costs and benefits of all the laws granted to human beings everywhere. You hate us, she interrupted. You despise every last one of us. Quietly, Joe assured her, you don't know what I hate. She stiffened, saying nothing. This is the situation as I see it. Joe paused for a moment. Inside that one vial, you have a bug that could wipe out your alleged enemies. And by enemies, I mean people that look at you with suspicion and fear. You intend to keep your doomsday disease at the ready, just in case you need it. Of course. Except you'll have to eventually grow more of it, if you want to keep it as a credible immediate threat. And you'll have to divide your stocks and store them in scattered secure locations. Otherwise, assholes like me are going to throw the bugs in a pile and burn it all with a torch. She watched Joe, her sore jaw clamped tight. But having stockpiles of natural killer brings a different set of problems. Who can trust who not to use it without permission? And the longer this virus exists, the better the chance that the normals will find effective fixes to keep themselves safe. Vaccines, quarantine laws, whatever we need to weather the plague. And, of course, give us our chance to take our revenge afterwards. The red glow had not moved. For a full minute, the little jungle had been perfectly, ominously silent. Markle glanced at Joe and then back at the high fence. He was obviously fighting the urge to shout warnings to the others that could alert the Grendel. But it took all of his will to do nothing. You have a great, great weapon, Joe allowed, but your advantage won't last. The girl was breathing faster now. You know what would be smart? Before the normals grow aware of your power, you should release the virus. No warnings, no explanations. Do it before we know what hits us, and hope you kill enough of us in the first week that you can permanently gain the upper hand. No, Markle said, taking two steps toward the enclosure. We don't have more than a sample of the virus, and it is just a virus. Meaning what? Diseases are like wildfires, he explained. You watch them burn, and you can't believe that anything would survive the blaze. But afterward, there's always islands of green surrounded by scorched forest. The man had given this considerable thought. 
Three or four billion sapiens might succumb, but that would still leave us in the minority, and we wouldn't be able to handle the retribution. The girl showed a satisfied smile. But then Joe said, Except, and laughed quietly. The red glow had not moved, and the jungle stood motionless beneath the stars. But Markle had to look back at his prisoner, a new terror pushing away the old. What do you mean? the girl asked. Except what? You and your boss, Joe said. And who knows how many thousands of others, too. Each one of you looks exactly like us. You sound like us. And then he grinned and smacked his lips, adding, And you taste like us, too. Which mean that your particular species, whatever you call yourself, you'll come out of this nightmare better than anybody. The girl's eyes opened wide. A pained breath was taken and then held deep. Which, of course, is the central purpose of this gruesome exercise, Joe said. I'm sure Dr. Markle would have eventually let you in on his dirty secret. The real scheme hiding behind the first, more public plan. Too astonished to react, Markle stared at the cuffed, unarmed man sitting in the bricks. Is this true? the girl whispered. There was a moment of hesitation. Then the genius managed to shake his head, lying badly, when he said, Of course not. The man is telling you a crazy, wild story, dear. And you know why he never told you? Joe asked. Shut up, Markle warned. The girl was carrying a weapon, just as Joe had guessed. From the back of her pants, she pulled a small pistol, telling Markle, Let him talk. Darling, he's trying to poison you. Shut up, she snapped. Then to Joe, she asked, Why didn't he tell me? Because you're a good, decent person, or at least you like to think so, and because he knew how to use that quality to get what he wants. Showing a hint of compassion, Joe sighed. First, he makes you sleep with me, and then he shows you my files, convincing you that I can't be trusted or ignored, which is why you slept with me three more times, just to keep a close watch over me. The girl lowered her pistol, and she sobbed and then started to lift the pistol again. Put that down, Markle said. She might have obeyed, given another few moments to think, but Markle shot her three times. He did it quickly and lowered his weapon afterward, astonished that he had done this very awful thing. It took his great mind a long, sloppy moment to wrap itself around the idea that he could murder in that particular fashion, that he possessed such brutal, prosaic power. Then he started to lift his gun again, searching for Joe. But Joe, wrists and feet bound, was already rolling to the dead girl's body, and with her little gun... He put a bullet into Markle's forehead. The blind, unborn monster watched the drama from inside its crystal egg. A few moments later, a bloody brilliance boy ran up to the Grendel's fence and with a joyous holler flung the red putty and diamond vial back onto the plaza. Then he turned and fired twice at the shadows before something monstrous lifted him high, shook him once, and folded him backward before neatly tearing him in two. 3. The ticking bomb. Goodness, the prisoner muttered. It's the legend himself. Joe said nothing. Well, now I feel especially terrified. She laughed weakly before coughing, a dark bubble of blood clinging to the split corner of her mouth. Then she closed her eyes for a moment, suppressing her pain as she turned her head to look straight at him. You must be planning all kinds of horrors, she said. Savage new ways to break my spirit, to bear my soul. Gecko slippers gripped the wall. Joe watched the prisoner. He opened his mouth as if to speak, but then closed it again, one finger idly scratching a spot behind his left ear. I won't be scared, she decided. This is an honor, having someone this famous assigned to my case. I must be considered an exceptionally important person. He seemed amused, 
if just for a moment. But I'm not a person, am I? In your eyes, I'm just another animal. What she was was a long, elegant creature, the ultimate marriage between human traditions and synthetic chromosomes. Four bare arms were restrained with padded loops and pulled straight out from the shockingly naked body. Because hair could be a bother in space, she had none. Because dander was an endless source of dirt in freefall, her skin would peel away periodically, not unlike the worn skin of a cobra. She was smart, but not in the usual ways that two or three thousand species of rebirths enhance their minds. Her true genius lay in social skills. Among the ant folk, she could instantly recognize every face and recall each name, knowing at least ten thousand nestmates as thoroughly as two sapiens who had been lifelong pals. Even among the alien faces of traditional humans, she was a marvel at reading faces, deciphering postures. Every glance taught her something more about her captors. Each careless word gave her room to maneuver. That's why the first team, a pair of low-ranking interrogators, unaware of her importance, was quickly pulled from her case. She had used what was obvious, making a few offhand observations, and in the middle of her second session, the two officers had started to trade insults and then punches. A caraway-worthy moment had been the unofficial verdict. A second, more cautious team rode the skyhook up from Quito, and they were wise enough to work their prisoner without actually speaking to her. Solitude and sensory deprivation were the tools of choice. Without adequate stimulation, an ant folk would crumble. And the method would have worked, except that three or four weeks would have been required. But time was short. Several intelligence sources delivered the same ominous warning. This was not just another low-level prisoner. The ant folk, named Glory, was important, maybe essential. Days mattered now, even hours which is why a third team went to work immediately, doing their awful best from the reassuring confines of a U.N. bunker set two kilometers beneath the Matterhorn. The new team consisted of A.I.s and autodocs with every compassion system deleted. Through the careful manipulation of pain and hallucinogenic narcotics, they managed to dislodge a few nuggets of intelligence, as well as a level of hatred and malevolence that they had never before witnessed. The bomb is mine, she screamed. I helped design it, and I helped build it. Antimatter triggers the fusion reaction, and it's compact and efficient and shielded to where it's nearly invisible. I even selected our target. Believe me, when my darling detonates, everything is going to change. At that point, their prisoner died. Reviving her wasted precious minutes. But that was ample time for the machines to discuss the obvious possibilities, then calculate various probabilities. In the time remaining, what could be done? And what was impossible? Then, without a shred of ego or embarrassment, they contacted one of the only voices they had considered more talented than themselves. And now Joe stood before the battered prisoner. Again, he scratched at his ear. Time hadn't touched him too roughly. He was in his middle forties, but his boyish good looks had been retained through genetics and a sensible indifference to sunshine. Careful eyes would have noticed the fatigue in his body, his motions. A veteran soldier could have recognized the subtle erosion of spirit, and a studied gaze of the kind that an ant-folk would employ would detect signs of weakness and doubt that didn't quite fit when it came to one of the undisputed legends of this exceptionally brutal age. Joe acted as if there was no hurry, but his heart was beating too fast, his belly roiling with nervous energy, and the corners of his mouth were a little too tight particularly when he looked as if he wanted to speak. "'What are you going to do with me?' 
The prisoner inquired. And again he scratched at his scalp, something about his skin bothering him to distraction. She was puzzled slightly. Say something, Gloria advised. I am a legend, am I? The smile was unchanged, bright and full, but behind the polished teeth and bright green eyes was a quality, some trace of some subtle emotion that the prisoner couldn't quite name. She was intrigued. I know all about you, Gloria explained. I know your career in detail, successes and failures both. For an instant, Joe looked at the lower pair of arms, following the long bones to where they met within the reconfigured hips. Would you hear something ironic? she asked. Always. The asteroid you were planning to mine? Back during your brief, eventful career as an astronaut, I mean. It's one of ours now. Until your bomb goes boom, he said. And then that chunk of iron and humanity is going to be destroyed, along with every other nest of yours, I would guess. Dear man, are you threatening me? You would be the better judge of that. She managed to laugh. I'm not particularly worried. He said nothing. Would we take such an enormous risk if we didn't have the means to protect ourselves? Joe stared at her for a long while, and then he looked beyond her body at a random point on the soft white wall. Quietly he asked, Who am I? She didn't understand the question. You've seen some little digitals of me. Supposedly you peeked at my files, but do you know for sure who I am? She nearly laughed. Joseph Carraway. He closed his eyes. Security, he said abruptly. I need you here, now. Whatever was happening, it was interesting. Despite the miseries inflicted on her mind and aching body, the prisoner twisted her long neck, watching three heavily armed soldiers kick their way into her cell. This is an emergency, Joe announced. I need everybody, your full squad, in here now. The ranking officer was a small woman with bulging muscles of a steroid hopper. A look of genuine admiration showed in her face. She knew all about Joe Carraway. Who didn't? But her training and regulations held sway. This man might have saved the earth on one or several occasions, but she still had the fortitude to remind him, I can't bring everybody in here. That's against regulations. Joe nodded. Sighing, he said, Then we'll just have to make do. In an instant, with a smooth, almost beautiful motion, he grabbed the officer's face and broke her jaw, and then pulled a weapon from his pocket, shoving the stubby barrel into the nearest face. The pistol made a soft, almost negligible sound. The remains of the skull were scattered into the face of the next guard. He shot that soldier twice and then killed the commanding officer before grabbing up her weapon, using his security code to override its safety and then leaping into the passageway. The prisoner strained at her bonds. Mesmerized, she counted the soft blasts and the shouts, and she stared, trying to see through the spreading fog of blood and shredded brain matter. Then a familiar figure reappeared, moving with commendable grace despite having a body designed to trek across the savannas of Africa. We have to go, said Joe. Now. He was carrying a fresh gun and jumpsuit. I don't believe this, she managed. He cut her bonds and said, Didn't think you would. Then he paused just for an instant. Joe Carraway was captured and killed three years ago, during the tranquility business. I'm the lucky man they spliced together to replace that dead asshole. You're telling me, suit up. Let's go, lady. You can't be. She was numb fighting to understand what was possible, no matter how unlikely. What species of rebirth are you? I was an eagle, he said. She stared at the face. Never in her life had she tried so hard to slice through skin and eyes, fighting to decipher what was true. Suit up, he said again. 
But I don't see... Joe turned suddenly, launching a recoilless bundle out into the hall. The detonation was a soft crack, smart shards aiming only for armor and flesh, sparing the critical hull surrounding them. We'll have to fight our way to my ship, he warned. Slowly, with stiff, clumsy motions, she dressed herself. As the suit retailored itself to match her body, she said again, I don't believe you. I don't believe any of this. Now Joe stared at her, hard. What do you think, lady? he asked. You rewrote your biology in a thousand crazy ways, but one of your brothers, a proud eagle, isn't able to reshape himself? He can't take on the face of your worst enemy? He can't steal the dead man's memories? He has allowed this kind of power, all in a final bid to get revenge for what that miserable shit's done to us? She dipped her head. No, she didn't believe him. But three hours later, as they were making the long burn out of Earth orbit, a flash of blue light announced the abrupt death of fifty million humans, and perhaps half a million innocents. A worthy trade, said the man strapped into the seat beside her. And that was the moment when Glory finally offered two of her hands to join up with one of his, and after that, her other two hands as well. Her nest was the nearest ant-folk habitat, waiting at the moon's L5 Lagrange point. The asteroid was a smooth, blackish ball, heat-absorbing armor slathered deep over the surface of a fully infested cubic kilometer, a city where thousands of bodies squirmed about in freefall, thriving inside a maze of warm tunnels and airy rooms. Banks of fusion reactors powered factories in the sun-bright lights. Trim, enduring ecosystems created an endless feast of edible gruel and free oxygen. The society was unique, at least within the short, rich history of the rebirths. Communal and technologically adept, this species had accomplished much in a very brief period. That's why it was so easy for them to believe that they alone now possessed the keys to the universe. Joe was taken into custody, into quarantine. Teams drawn from security and medical castes tried to piece together the truth, draining off his blood and running electrodes into his skull, inflicting him with induced emotions and relentless urges to be utterly, perfectly honest. The Earth's counter-assault arrived on schedule, lasers and missiles followed by robot shock troopers. But the asteroid's defense network absorbed every blow. Damage was minor, casualties light, and before larger attacks could be organized, the ant folk sent an ultimatum to the UN. One hundred additional fusion devices had been smuggled to the Earth's surface, each now hidden and secured, waiting for any excuse to erupt. For the good of humankind, the ant folk were claiming dominion over everything that lay beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Orbital facilities in the lunar cities would be permitted, but only if reasonable rents were paid. Other demands included nationhood status for each of the rebirth species, reimbursements for all past wrongs, and within the next year, the total and permanent dismantling of the United Nations. Both sides declared a ragged truce. Eight days later, Joe was released from his cell, guards escorting him along a tunnel marked by pheromones and infrared signatures. Glory was waiting wearing her best gown and a wide, hopeful smile. The Anfolk man beside her seemed less sure. He was a giant, hairless creature, leader of the Nest's political caste. He glared at the muscular sapien, and with a cool, smooth voice said, The tunnel before you splits, Mr. Carraway. Which way will you travel? What are my choices? asked the prisoner. Death now, the man promised, or death in some ill-defined future. I think I prefer the future, he said. Then he glanced at Glory, meeting her worried smile with a wink and a slight nod. 
The look that Glory shot her superior was filled with meaning and hope. I don't relish the idea of trusting you, the man confessed, but every story you've told us, with words and genetics, has been confirmed by every available source. You were once a man named Magnificent. We see traces of your original DNA inside what used to be Joseph Carraway. It seems that our old enemy was indeed taken prisoner during the Luna Revolt. The Eagles were a talented bunch. They may well have camouflaged you inside Mr. Carraway's body and substance. A sorry thing that the species was exterminated, save for you, of course. But once this new war is finished, I promise you, my people will reconstitute yours as well as your culture, to the best of our considerable abilities. Joe dipped his head. I can only hope to see that day, sir. The man had giant white eyes and tiny blonde teeth. Watching the prisoner did no good. He could not read the man's soul, so he turned to Glory, prompting her with the almost invisible flick of a finger. She told Joe, The UN attack was almost exactly as you expected it to be, and your advice proved extremely useful. Thank you. Joe showed a smug little smile. And you told us a lot we didn't know, Glory continued. Those ten agents on Pallas, the Demos booby trap, and how the UN would go about searching for the rest of our nuclear devices. Are your bombs safe? She glanced at her superior, finding encouragement in some little twitch of the face. Then she said, Yes. Do you want to know their locations? The man asked Joe. No. Then in the next breath, Joe added, And I hope you don't know that either, sir. You're too much of a target. Should somebody grab you up? More good advice, the man replied. That was the instant when Joe realized that he wouldn't be executed as a precaution. More than three years of careful preparation had led to this. The intricate backstory and genetic trickery were his ideas, carrying off every aspect of this project, from the eagle's identity to his heightened capacity to read bodies and voices, was the end result of hard training. Hundreds of specialists, all AIs, had helped produce the new Joseph Carraway. And then each one of those machines was wiped stupid and melted to an anonymous slag. On that day when he dreamed of this outrageous plan, the ant folk were still just one of a dozen rebirths that might or might not cause trouble some day. Nobody could have planned for these last weeks. Killing the guards to free the woman was an inspiration and a necessity, and he never bothered to question it. One hundred fusion bombs were scattered across a helpless, highly vulnerable planet, and setting them off would mean billions dead, and perhaps civilizations too. Sacrificing a few soldiers to protect the rest of the world was a plan born of simple, pure mathematics. The Antfolk man coughed softly. <clears throat> From this point on, Joe, or should I call you magnificent? With an appealing smile, he said, I've grown attached to Joe. The other two laughed gently. Then the man said, From now, you are my personal guest, and except for security bracelets and a bomblet planted inside your skull, you will be given the freedoms and responsibilities expected of all worthy visitors. Then I am grateful, said Joe. Thank you to your nation and to your good species, sir. Thank you so much. The truce was shattered with one desperate assault, three brigades of shock troops riding inside untested star-drive boosters, supported by every weapon system and reconfigured comm laser available to the UN. The cost was 20,000 dead sapiens and a little less than a trillion dollars. One platoon managed to insert itself inside Joe's nest. 
but when the invaders grabbed the nursery and a thousand young hostages, he distinguished himself by helping plan and then lead the counter-strike. All accounts made him the hero. He killed several of the enemy, and alone he managed to disable the warhead that would have shattered their little world. But even the most grateful mother insisted on looking at their savior with detached pleasure. Trust was impossible. Joe's face was too strange, his reputation far too familiar. Pheromones delivered the mandatory thanks, and there were a few cold gestures wishing the hero well. But these were insults, too, directed at him and at the long, lovely woman who was by now sleeping with him. In retribution for that final attack, the Antfolk detonated a second nuclear weapon, shearing off one slope of the Hawaii volcano and killing eight million with the resulting tsunami. Nine days later, the UN collapsed, reformed from the wreckage, and then shattered again before the next dawn. What rose from that sorry wreckage enjoyed both the laws to control every aspect of the mother world and the mandate to beg for their enemy's mercy. The giants in the sky demanded, and subsequently won, each of their original terms. For another three months, Joe lived inside the little asteroid, enduring a never-subtle shunning. Then higher powers learned of his plight and intervened. For the next four years, he traveled widely across the new empire, always in the company of glory the two of them meeting an array of leaders, scientists, and soldiers. That last group as suspicious as any, but ever eager to learn whatever little tricks the famous Carraway might share with them. To the end, Joe remained under constant observation. Glory made daily reports about his behaviors and her own expert impressions. Their relationship originally began under orders from Pallas, but when she realized that they might well remain joined until one or both died, she discovered, to her considerable surprise, that she wasn't displeased with her fate. In the vernacular of her species, she had floated into love, and so what if the object of her affections was an apish goon? During their journey, they visited twenty little worlds, plus Pallas and Ceres and Vesta. The man beside her was never out of character. He was intense and occasionally funny, and he was quick to learn and astute with observations about life inside the various nests. Because it would be important for the last member of a species, Joe pushed hard for the resurrection of the fabled eagles. Final permission came just as he and Gloria were about to travel to outer moons of Jupiter. Three tedious, painful days were spent inside the finest biogenic lab in the solar system. Samples of bone and marrow and fat and blood were cultured, and delicate machines rapidly separated what had been Joe from the key traces of the creature that had been dubbed Magnificent. A long voyage demands large velocities, which is why the transport ship made an initial high-G burn. The crew and passengers were strapped into elaborate crash seats, their blood laced with comfort drugs, eyes and minds distracted by immersion masks. Six hours after they leaped clear of Vesta, Joe disabled each of his tracking bracelets and the bomblet inside his head, and then he slipped out of his seat, fighting the terrific acceleration as he worked his way to the bridge. The transport was an enormous, utterly modern spaceship. The watch officer was on the bridge, stretched out in his own crash seat. Instantly suspicious and without even the odor of politeness, he demanded that his important passenger leave at once. Joe smiled for a moment, then he turned without complaint or hesitation, showing his broad back to the spidery fellow before he climbed out of view. What killed the officer was a fleck of dust carrying microsheens, a fleet of tiny devices that attacked essential genes found inside the antfolk metabolism, causing a choking sensation, vomiting, and soon death. Joe returned to the bridge and sent a brief, heavily coated message to the Earth. Then he did a cursory job of destroying the ship's security systems. 
With luck, he had earned himself a few hours apiece. But when he returned to his cabin, Gloria was gone. She had pulled herself out of her seat, or somebody had roused her. For a moment, he touched the deep padding, allowing the sheets to wrap around his arm and hand, and he carefully measured the heat left behind by her long, lovely body. Too bad, he muttered. The transport carried five fully equipped life pods. Working fast, Joe killed the hangar's robots and both of the resident mechanics. He dressed in the only pressure suit configured for his body and crippled all but one of the pods. His plan was to flee without fuss. The pods had potent engines and were almost impossible to track. There was no need for more corpses and mayhem. But he wanted a backup plan, and that's what he was working on when the ship's engines abruptly cut out. A few minutes later, an armed team crawled into the hangar through a random vent. There was no reason to fight, since Joe was certain to lose. Instead, he surrendered his homemade weapons and looked past the nervous crew, finding the lovely hairless face that he knew better than his own. "'What did you tell them?' Gloria asked. "'Tell who?' "'Your people,' she said. "'The Earth.' Gloria didn't expect answers, much less any honest words. But the simple fact was that whatever he said now and did now was inconsequential. Joe would survive or die in this cold realm. But what happened next would change nothing that was about to happen elsewhere. "'Your little home nest,' he began. She drifted forward and then hesitated. "'It will be dead soon,' he promised, "'and nothing can be done to save it. "'Is there a bomb?' "'No,' he said. "'A microsheen plague. "'I brought it with me when I snatched you away, Glory. "'It was hiding inside my bones. "'But you were tested,' she said. "'Not well enough. "'We hunted for diseases,' she insisted. "'Agents, toxins. "'We have the best minds anywhere, "'and we searched you inside and out "'and found nothing remotely dangerous.' He watched the wind leak out of her. Then, very quietly, Joe admitted, You might have had the best minds, and best by a long ways, but we have a lot more brains down on the earth, and I promise a few of us are a good deal meaner than even you could ever be. Enduring torture, Glory never looked this frail or sad. Joe continued, Every world you've taken me to is contaminated. I made certain of that. And since you managed to set off two bombs on my world, the plan is to obliterate two of your worlds. After that, if you refuse to surrender, it's fair to guess that every bomb and disease on both sides is going to be set free. Then in the end, nobody wins. Ever. Glory could not look at him. Joe laughed, aiming to humiliate. He said, I don't care how smart or noble you are. Like everybody else, you're nothing but meat and scared brains, and now you've been thrown into a dead-end tunnel and I am death standing at the tunnel's mouth. The clock is ticking. Can you make the right decision? Glory made a tiny, almost invisible motion with her smallest finger, betraying her intentions. Joe leaped backward. The final working life pod was open, and he dove inside as its hatch slammed shut, moments before the doomed could manage one respectable shot. Then twenty weapons were firing at a hull designed to shrug off the abuse of meteors and sapien weapons. Joe pulled himself into the pilot's ill-fitting chair, and once he was strapped down, he triggered his just-finished booby trap. The fuel on board two other pods exploded. With a silent flash of light, the transport shattered, spilling its contents across the black and frigid wilderness. 4. The Assassin "'Eat!' the voice insisted. "'Don't our dead heroes deserve their feast?' "'So that's what I am?' A hero, absolutely, my friend. I meant that I'm dead. 
Joe looked across the table, measuring his host, an imposing Chinese-Indian male wearing the perfect suit and a face conditioned to convey wisdom and serene authority. I realized that I got lost for a time, he admitted, but I never felt particularly deceased. Perhaps that's how the dead perceive their lot, yes? Joe nodded amiably, and using his stronger arm, stabbed at his meal. Even in lunar gravity, every motion was an effort. Are your rehabilitations going well? They tell me I'm making some progress. Modesty doesn't suit you, my friend. My sources assure me that you are amazing your trainers, and I think you know that perfectly well. The meat was brown and sweet, like duck, but without the grease. Presently you hold the record, Joe. Joe looked up again. Five and a half years in freefall, said Mr. Lee, slowly shaking his head. Assume dead, and in your absence justly honored for the accomplishments of an intense and extremely successful life. I am sorry no one was actively searching for you, sir, but no earth-based eye saw the Antfolk spaceship explode, much less watch the debris scatter. So we had no starting point, and to make matters worse, your pod had a radar signature a little bigger than a fist. You were very fortunate to be where you happened to be, drifting back into the inner solar system, and you were exceptionally lucky to be noticed by that little mining ship. And just imagine your reception if that ship's crew had been anyone but sapiens. The billionaire let his voice trail away. Joe had spent years wandering through the solar system, shepherding his food and riding roughshod over his recycling systems. That the life pod was designed to carry a dozen bodies was critical. He wouldn't have lasted ten months inside a lesser bucket. But the explosion that destroyed the transport damaged the pod, leaving it dumb and deaf. Joe had soon realized that nobody knew where he was, or even that he was. After the first year, he calculated that he might survive for another eight, but it would involve more good luck and hard focus than even he might have been able to summon. I want to tell you, Joe, when I learned about your survival, I was thrilled. I turned to my dear wife and my children and told everybody, This man is a marvel. He is a wonder, a one-in-a-trillion kind of sapien. Joe laughed quietly. Oh, I'm well studied in Joseph Carraway's life, his host boasted. After the war, humanity wanted to know who to thank for saving the earth. That's why the UN released portions of your files. Millions of us became amateur scholars. I myself acquired some of the less doctored accounts of your official history. I also read your five best biographies, and just like every other sapien, I have enjoyed your immersion drama, Warrior on the Ramparts. As a story, it takes a dramatic license with your life, of course. But Warrior was and is a cultural phenomenon, Joe. A stirring tale of courage and bold skill in the midst of wicked, soulless enemies. Joe set his fork beside the plate. After all the misery and death of the last two decades, said Mr. Lee, the world discovered the one man who could be admired, even emulated, a champion for the people. He said the word people with a distinct tone. Then Mr. Lee added, Even the rebirths paid to see Warrior, paid to read the books and the sanitized files, which is nicely ironic, isn't it? Your actions probably saved millions of them. Without your bravery, how many species would be ash and bone today? Joe lifted his fork again. A tenth of his life had been spent away from gravity and meaningful exercise. 
His bones, as well as the connecting muscle, had withered to where some experts, measuring the damage, cautioned their patient to expect no miracles. It didn't help that cosmic radiation had slashed through the pod's armor and through him. Even now, the effects of malnutrition could be seen in the spidery hands and forearms, and how his own lean meat hung limp on his suddenly ancient bones. Mr. Lee paused for a moment, an observant smile building. Whatever he said next would be important. Joe interrupted him, telling him, Thank you for the meal, sir. And thank you for being who you are, sir. When Joe left the realm of the living, this man was little more than an average billionaire. But the last five years had been endlessly lucrative for Lee Enterprises. Few had more money, and when ambition was thrown into the equation, perhaps no other private citizen wielded the kind of power enjoyed by the man sitting across the little table. Joe stabbed a buttery carrot. Joe? He lowered the carrot to the plate. Can you guess why I came to the moon? Besides to meet you over dinner, of course. Joe decided on a shy, self-deprecating smile. This encouraged his host. And do you have any idea what I wish to say to you? Any intuitions at all? Six weeks ago, Joe had abruptly returned to the living, but it took three weeks to rendezvous with a hospital ship dispatched just for him, and that vessel didn't touch down on the moon until the day before yesterday. Those two crews and his own research had shown Joe what he meant to the human world. He was a hero and a rich but controversial symbol and he was a polarizing influence in the great debate that still refused to die, an interspecies conflict forever threatening to bring on another terrible war. Joe knew exactly what the man wanted from him, but he decided to offer a lesser explanation. You're a man with enemies, he mentioned. Mr. Lee didn't need to ask. Who are my enemies? Both men understood what was being discussed. You need somebody qualified in charge of your personal security, Joe suggested. The idea amused Mr. Lee, but he laughed a little too long, perhaps revealing a persistent unease in his own safety. "'I have a fine team of private bodyguards,' he said at last, "'a team of sapiens who would throw their lives down to protect mine.' Joe waited. "'Perhaps you aren't aware of this, sir, but our recent tragedies have changed our government. The UN presidency now commands a surprising amount of authority, but he, or she, is still elected by adult citizens.' a pageant that maintains the very important illusion of a genuine self-sustaining democracy. Joe leaned across the table, nodding patiently. Within the next few days, said Mr. Lee, I will announce my candidacy for that high office. A few months later, I will win my party's primary elections. But I am a colorless merchant with an uneventful life story. I need to give the public one good reason to stand in my camp. What I have to find is a recognizable name that will inspire passions on both sides of the issues. You need a dead man, Joe said. And what do you think about that, sir? That I'm still trapped in that damn pod. Leaning back in his chair, Joe sighed. I'm starving to death, bored to tears, and dreaming up this insanity just to keep me a little bit sane. Sane or not, do you say yes? He showed his host a thoughtful expression. Then, very quietly, with the tone of a joke, Joe asked, So which name sits first on the ballot? As promised, Mr. Lee easily won the Liberty Party's nomination, and with a force-fed sense of drama, the candidate announced his long secret choice for running mate. By then, Joe had recovered enough to endure the Earth's relentless tug. 
He was carried home by private shuttle, and with braces under his trouser legs and a pair of lovely and strong women at his side, the celebrated war hero strode into an auditorium-slash-madhouse. Every motion had been practiced, every word scripted, yet somehow the passion and heart of the event felt genuine. Supporters and employees of the candidate pushed against one another, fighting for a better look at the running mate. With a natural sense for when to pause and how to wave at the world, Joe's chiseled, scarred face managed to portray that essential mixture of fearlessness and sobriety. Lee greeted him with open arms, the only time the two men would ever embrace. Buoyed by the crowd's energy, Joe felt strong, but when he decided to sit, he almost collapsed into his chair. Lee was a known quantity. Everyone kept watch over the new man. When Joe studied his boss, he used an expression easily confused for admiration. The acceptance speech was ten minutes of carefully crafted theater designed to convey calm resolve wrapped around coded threats. For too long, Lee said, their old honorable species had allowed its traditions to be undercut and diluted. When unity mattered, people followed every path. When solidarity was a virtue, evolution and natural selection was replaced by whim and caprice. But the new leadership would right these past wrongs. Good men and good women had died in the great fight, and new heroes were being discovered every day. Lee glanced at his running mate, winning a burst of applause, and Joe nodded at his benefactor, showing pride swirled with modesty. The speech concluded with a promise for victory in the general election, in another six weeks, and Joe applauded with everyone else. But he stood slowly, as if weak, shaking as an old man might shake. He was first to offer his hand of congratulations to the candidate and he was first to sit again, feigning the aching fatigue that he had earned over these last five years. Three days later, a lone sniper was killed outside the arena where the controversial running mate was scheduled to appear. Joe's security detail was led by a career police officer, highly qualified and astonishingly efficient. Using a quiet, unperturbed tone, he explained what had happened, showing his boss images of the would-be assassin. "'She's all sapien,' he mentioned." but with ties to the rebirths, a couple of lovers, and a lot of politics. Joe scanned the woman's files as well as the pictures. Was the lady working alone? As far as I can tell, yes, sir. What's this gun? Homemade, the officer explained. An old Czech design grown in a backyard nano smelter. She probably thought it would make her hard to trace. And I suppose it would have. An extra ten minutes to track her down through the isotope signatures and chine marks. Joe asked, how accurate? The rifle? Well, with that sight and incompetent hands, her hands, I mean, was she any good? We don't know yet, sir. The officer relished these occasional conversations. After all, Joe Carraway had saved humanity on at least two separate occasions, and always against very long odds. I suppose she must have practiced her marksmanship somewhere. But the thing is, what? This barrel isn't as good as it should be. Impurities in the ceramics and the heat of high-velocity rounds had warped it. Funny as it sounds, the more your killer practiced, the worse her gun would have become. Joe smiled and nodded. The officer nodded with him, waiting for the legend to speak. It might have helped us, Joe mentioned. If we'd let her take a shot or two, I mean. Help us? In the polls. The officer stared at him for a long moment. The dry, caraway humor was well known. Was this the worthy example? He studied the man who he had sworn to defend, and after considerable reflection, the officer decided to laugh weakly and shrug his shoulders. <laughs> but, but what if she got off one lucky shot? Joe laughed quietly. 
I thought that's what I was saying. To be alone, Joe took a lover. The young woman seemed honored and more than a little scared. After passing through security, they met inside his hotel room, and when the great man asked to send a few messages through her links, she happily agreed. Nothing about those messages would mean anything to anybody, but when they reached their destinations, other messages that had waited for years were released, winding their way to the same secure e-vault. Afterward, Joe had sex with her, and then she let him fix her a drink that he laced with sedatives. Once she was asleep, he donned arm and leg braces designed for the most demanding physical appearances. Then Joe opened a window, and ten stories above the bright, cold city, he climbed out onto the narrow ledge and slipped through the holes that he had punched in the security net. Half an hour later, shaking from exhaustion, Joe was standing at the end of a long alleyway. She was a mistake, he told the shadows. There was no answer. A blunder, he said. Was she? A deep voice asked. But you're always a little too good at inspiring others, Joe continued, getting people to be eager, making them jump before they were ready. In the darkness, huge lungs took a deep, lazy breath. Then the voice mentioned, I could kill you myself. I could kill you now. It was deep and slow, and the voice always sounded a little amused. Just a little. No guards protecting you. From what I see, you aren't carrying more than a couple baby pistols. Joe said, That's funny. Silence. I'm not the one you want, he said. You'd probably settle for me. But think about our history, friend. Look past all the public noise, and now remember everything that's happened between you and me. Against an old brick wall, a large body stirred. Then the voice said, Remind me. Joe mentioned, Baltimore. Yes. And Singapore. We helped each other there. And what about Kiev? I was in a gracious mood, a weak mood, looking back. Joe smiled. Regardless of moods, you let me live. The voice seemed to change, rising from a deeper part of the unseen body. It sounded wetter and very warm, admitting, I knew what you were, Joe. I understood how you thought. And between us, I felt we had managed an understanding. We had that, yes. You have always left my species alone. No reason not to. We weren't any threat to you. You've never been in trouble until now. But this man you are helping, this Lee monster, he is an entirely different kind of creature, I believe. Joe said nothing. And you are helping him. Don't deny it. I won't. A powerful sigh came from the dark, carrying the smell of raw fish and peppermint. Two days from now, Joe began. That would be the Prosperity Conference. The monster and I will be together, driving through Sao Paulo, inside a secure vehicle, surrounded by several platoons of soldiers. I would imagine so. Do you know our route? No, as it happens. Do you? Not yet. The shadows said nothing, and they didn't breathe, and they held themselves still enough that it was possible to believe that they had slipped away entirely. Then, very softly, the voice asked, When will you learn the route? Tomorrow night. But as you say, the level of protection will be considerable. So you want things to be easy, is that it? 
The laugh was smooth and hurried. <laughs> I want to know your intentions, Joe. Having arranged this collision of forces, what will you do? Pretend to fall ill at the last moment? Stand on the curb and offer a hearty wave as your benefactor rolls off to his doom? Who says I won't ride along? This time the laugh was louder, confident, and honestly amused. <laughs> Suppose you learn the route and share it with me, and imagine that despite my logistical nightmares, I have time enough to assemble the essential forces. Am I to understand that you will be riding into that worst kind of trouble? I've survived an ambush or two. When you were young, and you still had luck to spend. Joe said nothing. But you do have a reasonable point, the voice continued. If you aren't riding with the monster, questions will be asked, doubts will rise. Your character might have to endure some rather hard scrutiny. Sure, that's one fine reason to stay with him. And another is? You fall short. You can't get to Lee in the end. So don't you want to have a second option in place? Just in case? What option? Me. That earned a final long laugh. <laughs> Point taken, my friend. Point taken. The limousine could have been smaller and less pretentious, but the man strapped into its safest seat would accept nothing less than a rolling castle. And following the same kingly logic, the limousine's armor and its plasma weapons were just short of spectacular. The AI driver was capable of near miracles if it decided to flee. But in this vehicle, in most circumstances, the smart tactic would be to stand its ground and fight. One hundred sapien soldiers and ten times as many mechanicals were traveling the same street, sweeping for enemies and the possibility of enemies. In any battle, they would count for quite a lot. Unless, of course, some of them were turned, either through tricks or bribery. Which was as much consideration as Joe gave to the problem of attacking the convoy. Effort wasted was time lost. What mattered was the next ten or eleven minutes, and how he handled himself and how he managed to control events within his own limited reach. Lee and his two campaign wizards were conferring at the center of the limousine. Poles were a painful topic. They were still critical points behind the frontrunners, and the propaganda wing of his empire was getting worried. Ideas for new campaigns were offered, and then buried. Finally, the conversation fell into glowering silences and hard looks at a floor carpeted with cultured white ermine. That was when Joe unfastened his harness and approached. Lee seemed to notice him, but his assistant, a cold little Swede named Hussein, took the trouble to ask, "'What do you need, Mr. Carraway?' "'Just want to offer my opinion,' he said. "'Opinion? About what?' Joe made a pistol with his hand and pointed it at Hussein, and then he jerked so suddenly that the man flinched. "'What is it, Joe?' "'People are idiots,' Joe said. The candidate looked puzzled, but a moment later something about the words intrigued him. "'In what way?' We can't see into the future. We can't? None of us can, said Joe. He showed a little smile, a little wink. Not even ten seconds ahead in some cases. Yet we do surprisingly well, despite our limitations. The candidate leaned back, trying to find the smoothest way to dismiss this famous name. We can't see tomorrow, said Joe. But we are shrewd. People, you mean? Particularly when ten billion of us are thinking hard about the same problem. And that's why you aren't going to win this race. Nobody sees what will happen. But in this case, it's very easy to guess how the Lee presidency will play out. Hussein bristled. But Lee told him and everyone else to let the man speak. 
You're assuming that I hate these other species, Joe told him. In fact, you've counted on it from the start. But the truth is, I don't have any compelling attachment to sapiens. By and large, I am a genuinely amoral creature. While you, sir, you are a bigot and a genocidal asshole. And should you ever come to power, the solar system has a respectable chance of collapsing into full-scale civil war. Lee took a moment, then he pointed out, In my life I have killed no one, not a single rebirth, or for that matter, a sapien. Where I have slaughtered thousands, Joe admitted, and stood aside while millions more died. Maybe you are my problem. Perhaps we should drop you from the ticket. That is an option, Joe agreed. Is this what you wanted to say to me? That you wish to quit? Joe gave the man a narrow, hard-to-read smile. My life, he said. Uh, pardon? Lee asked. Early in my life, I decided to live as if I was very important, as if I was blessed in remarkable ways. In my hand, I believed, were the keys to a door that would lead to a worthy future. And all that was required of me was that I make hard calculations about matters that always seemed to baffle everyone else. I'm sorry, Joe. I'm not quite sure... I have always understood that I am the most important person there is, on earth or in any other world within our reach, and I have always been willing to do or say anything that helps my climb to the summit. But how can you be that special, since that's my place to be? Lee laughed, and his assistants heartily joined in. Again, Joe made a pistol with his hand, pointing his index finger at the candidate's face. You're a scary individual. Lee remarked. Then he tried to wave the man back, looking at no one, when he said, Perhaps a medical need needs to be diagnosed. A little vacation for our dear friend, perhaps. Hussein gave an agreeable nod. In the distance, a single soft pop could be heard. Joe slipped back to his seat. His security man was sitting beside him. Bothered as well as curious, he asked, What was all that about? Nothing, said Joe. Never mind. Another mild pop was followed by something a little louder, a little nearer. Just in case, the security man reached for his weapon, but he discovered that his holster was empty now. Somehow his gun had found its way into Joe's hand. Stay close to me, Joe said. You know I will, the man muttered weakly. Then came the flash of a thumb nuke, followed by the sharp wail of people screaming, begging with fortune to please show mercy, to please save their glorious, important lives. Five. World's End Three terms as president finally ended with an assortment of scandals, little crimes and large ones, plus a series of convenient non-disclosures, and those troubles were followed by the sudden announcement that Joseph Carraway would slide gracefully into retirement. After all that, there was persistent talk about major investigations and unsealing ancient records. Tired allegations refused to die. Could the one-time leader of humanity be guilty of even one-tenth of the crimes he was rumored to have committed? In judicial circles, wise minds discussed the prospects of charging and convicting the old man on the most egregious insults to common morality. Politicians screamed for justice without quite defining what justice required. Certain species were loudest in their complaints, but that was to be expected. What was more surprising, perhaps, were the numbers of pure sapiens who blamed the president for every kind of ill. But most of the pain and passion fell on one-time colleagues and allies. Unable to sleep easily, they would sit at home, secretly considering their own complicities in old struggles and more recent deeds, as well as non-deeds and omissions that seemed brilliant at the moment, but now, in different light, looked rather ominous. In the end, nothing substantial happened. 
In the end, the caraway magic continued to hold sway. His successor was a talented and noble soul. No one doubted her passion for peace or the decency of her instincts, and she was the one citizen of the inhabited worlds who could sit at a desk and sign one piece of parchment for giving crimes and transgressions and mistakes and misjudgments. And then she showed her feline face to the cameras, winning over public opinion by pointing out that trials would take decades, verdicts would be contested for centuries, and every last one of the defendants had been elected and then served every citizen with true skill. The new president served one six-year term before leaving public life. Joseph Carraway entered the next race at the last moment, and he won with a staggering 70% mandate. By then, the old man was exactly that, a slowed, sorry image of his original self, dependent on a talented staff and the natural momentum of a government that achieved the ordinary without fuss or too much controversy. Fifteen months into Joe's final term, an alien starship entered the solar system. In physical terms, it was a modest machine, twenty cubic kilometers of metal and diamond wrapped around empty spaces. There seemed to be no crew or pilot, nor was there a voice offering to explain itself. But its course was clear from the beginning. Moving at nearly one percent of light speed, the stranger, as it had been dubbed, missed the moon by a few thousand kilometers. Scientists at every telescope studied its configuration. Two nukes were set off in its vicinity— neither close enough to cause damage, it was hoped, but both producing EM pulses that helped create a detailed portrait of what lay inside. Working separately, teams of AI savants found the same awful hypothesis, and a single ant-folk nest dedicated to the most exotic physics proved that hypothesis to everyone's grim satisfaction. By then, the stranger was passing through the sun's corona, its hull red-hot and its interior awakening. What might have been a hundred thousand years' sleep was coming to an end. In less than a minute, this very unwelcome guest had vanished, leaving behind a cloud of ions and a tiny flare that normally would trouble no one, much less spell doom for humankind. They told Joe what would happen. His science advisor spoke first, and when there was no obvious reaction on that perpetually calm face, two assistants threw their interpretations of these events at the old man. Again, nothing happened. Was he losing his grip, finally? This creature who had endured and survived every kind of disaster? Was he suddenly lost, at wit's end and such? But no, he was just letting his elderly mind assemble the puzzle that they had given him. How much time, he asked. Ten, maybe twelve minutes, the science advisor claimed. And then another eight minutes before the radiation and scorching heat reaches. Others were hoping for a longer delay, as if twenty or thirty minutes would offer some kind of help. Joe looked out the window and with a wry smile pointed out, It is a beautiful day. In other words, the sun was up, and they were dead. How far will the damage extend, he asked. Nobody replied. The ant-folk ambassador was watching from her orbital embassy, tied directly into the president's office. For a multitude of reasons, she despised this sapien, but he was the ruler of the great nest, and in awful times she was willing to do or say anything to help him even if that meant telling him the full, undiluted truth. Our small worlds will be vaporized. The big asteroids will melt and seal in the deepest parts of our nests. With a sad gesture of every hand, she added, Mars is worse off than Earth. What with the terraforming only begun? And soon there won't be any solid surfaces on the Jovian moons. Joe turned back to his science advisor. Will the Americas survive? In places, maybe. The man was nearly sobbing. The flares will be finished before the sun rises, 
and even with the climate shifts and the ash falls, there's a fair chance that the atmosphere will remain breathable. Joe nodded. Quietly, firmly, he told everyone, I want an open line to every world in 30 seconds. Before anyone could react, the youngest assistant screamed out, Why? Why would aliens do this awful thing to us? Joe laughed for a moment. Then, with a grandfatherly voice, he said, Because they can. That's why. It has been an honor to serve as your president, Joe told an audience of two and then three and then four billion. But most citizens were too busy to watch this unplanned speech. An important element in his gruesome calculations. But my days are done. The sun has been infiltrated, its hydrogen stolen, to use in the manufacture of an amazing bomb. And virtually everybody in the range of my voice will be dead by tomorrow. If you are listening to me, listen carefully. The only way you will survive in the coming hell is to find those very few people whom you trust most. Do it now. Get to your families. Hold hands with your lovers. Whoever you believe will watch your back always. And then you need to search out those who aren't aware of what I am telling you to do. Kill those other people. Whatever they have of value, take it. And store their corpses, if you can. In another week or two, you might relish the extra protein and fat. He paused just for a moment. Then Joe said, For the next ten generations, you will need to think only about yourselves. Be selfish, be vicious, be strong, and do not forget. Kindness is a luxury. Empathy will be a crippling weakness. But in another fifty generations we can rebuild everything that we have lost here today. I believe that, my friends. Goodness can come again. Decency can flower in any rubble. And in fifty more generations after that we will reach out to the stars together. Keep that thought close tonight and always. One day... We will punish the bastards who did this awful thing to us. But to make that happen, a few of you must find the means to survive. There you go, don't forget, copyright, Robert Reed, and a big thank you to Mike Boris. Mike, thank you, sir. Interview time. On the line, we have Hanu Ranyani. Hanu, are you there, sir? Uh, yes, I am. Yes, uh, now, I know I've totally killed that surname. You tell everyone then, how, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> Rayaniemi. There you go. So if anyone's out there, you try saying that. Hanno, you've got, you know, you've had this, this book came out, The Quantum Thief. It's making loads of great noise in the kind of science fiction world. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so so, so The Quantum Thief really is sort of an attempt to Tell, tell an old-fashioned adventure story in, in, the, in the style of Maurice LeBlanc's Arsène Lupin and sort of uh, turn-of-the-century um, sort of belle époque uh, adventure story uh, in a post-singularity world where, where um, so, so the themes, themes are very much uh, identity, betrayal, vengeance, and, and so on, but in a world where, where identity is very fluid where 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 minds can be can be uploaded memories can be shared and, and edited and uh so the main main character jean jean le Flambeur, is is a is a sort of a post-singularity gentleman thief who, who uh in order to to gain his freedom has to has to try to pull off one last job um and uh, most of the action takes place on on mars but sort of hopefully hopefully um slightly slightly uh Different Mars, not not just the boring, boring uh, uh, sort of 
wrecked desert that uh, sort of uh, terraformed uh, far future Mars with this um, sort of a mixture of post-human uh, civilizations and, and, and moving moving cities and, uh, and and so on. So I think that would be that would be roughly roughly the, the elevator pitch. Where would you put your book then, Hanu? Is it more like say the hard sciences, or is it like the the, say, the soft science fiction, the the, the character driven story? Um, I would like to like to think that it it is very much a character driven story. The sort of the, the main three three characters uh, all have their have have both their their sort of overt and and hidden uh, desires and and uh, and agendas. Um, of course, uh, give it that the setting setting is fairly complex. Um, I would say, I mean. I, I do. I'm, I'm sure my my uh, sort of scientific background uh, probably influenced the the setting a little bit. So so there is, there is some hard science, uh, especially sort of quantum quantum information and and uh, some some physics. But um, but I would say that actually the most important sort of speculative element uh, in the book probably is more on the social side, trying to examine some of the implications of. What the ability to digitally share memories, uh, the the uh, ability to control privacy, your your, your the, the, um, the level of privacy of, of the information that that you that you would generate in a society with ubiquitous computing and and, and sensing, um, and what, 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 what how would that affect relationships and uh, and your sense of identity? So so probably there's quite a lot of hard science, but. Uh, I would say that the main speculative aspect is actually uh, a bit bit softer. You know, you, you mentioned just there as well. You know, you kind of your, your, your background, mathematics and theoretical physics. You, you studied at university. That's some heavy, you know, <laughs> learning going on there. Is what in the, in the ways like your day job? You know, you've got all that kind of background in the kind of is writing your full time day job, or have you got something else that kind of keeps the, the pennies coming in? No, I'm. I'm uh, write, writing is is much more of a hobby hobby for me. Although although it is it is obviously uh, uh, taking up quite a bit of, bit of time at the moment. But um, but my, my day job is is a director in in a, a technology company or, or a mathematics company actually actually called Think Tank Maths, based here in Edinburgh. We we now we're basically a company that uh, applies high level mathematics to to solve business problems uh, for typically for for large companies. We also do some work for the Ministry of Defense, uh, the BBC, Motorola, uh, those kinds of blue chip companies. So so that's 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 my day job. But uh, uh, it, it is it is very much related to, to mathematics and, and science as well. What would happen, Hanu then, if you know, where do you stand? Uh, you know, you're saying you're a director of the company. That sounds really big and powerful. But say the writing really does t- take off. Are you prepared to kind of ditch that side? Are you all, is it always going to be a hobby, the writing? And, and probably for the foreseeable future, try try to keep it keep it as a hobby. But uh, of course, uh, who, who knows what's going to happen in in, in a few few years' time? But uh, so certainly, certainly, the uh, I think the two two are are kind of interrelated. Being being part of part of the sort of uh, Small small company is quite quite exciting, and we work in very very exciting areas related to fundamental science. So so I think that that does help to actually generate ideas as well as well, and uh, keeps life life exciting. Yeah, it gives me something to write about. I tell you what was really nice, and I suppose everyone wants a, like a, a kind of a blurb like this. But Charlie Stross has called you or calls your book "The Quantum Thief" is probably the best science fiction novel he's read in many years. That's a nice. 
you know Charlie or not? Because, I mean, you, you, you kind of opened that, that area. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Charlie very well. Um, so, so we've been in the same writers group for for years. So, so obviously, it's it's very very ni- nice that uh, to to get a quote uh, like like that from him. And I very much respect and admire Charlie Charlie as a writer and and as a, as a human being. So, um, yeah, I mean, he was actually um, so so, so uh, I've been a part of a writers group in Edinburgh that was probably sort of the main uh, main driving force that really really got me. Got me writing since I got here about um, sort of uh, nine years ago. Uh, so that same group, uh, along with Charlie, includes people like uh, Alan Campbell and, and uh, Jack Dayton and Caroline Dunford, who sort of all, all had had novels novels published. And uh, it's it's um, very very sort of professional um, group, uh, sort of good group of people that, that gives you gives you very honest honest critique and. Uh, Writing is quite a lonely activity, so it's quite quite good to have sort of a support group like that to to share it with. So you, you were born. This is what I'm hoping I'm picking up. Right, you were born in film 1978. When mm-hmm. what made you come over to live in the UK? So uh, basically, I I, I, I I wanted to to study theoretical physics. In particular, I wanted to do something related to string theory or or cosmology. Uh, when, when I finished my first degree in Finland, I had the opportunity to, to come and do, do um, a course, sort of a master's level course in Cambridge, and then ended up uh, through, through my director of studies there. I ended up um, finding, finding a supervisor, um, Jose Figueroa Ferrell, in the University of Edinburgh, who was basically doing very much the kinds of things I wanted to do uh, research-wise, so, so sort of an intersection between high-level physics and, and uh, mathematics, pure, pure mathematics. So... Um, so I ended up ended up here with my PhD here in Edinburgh, and then then we uh, started the company with some friends. So so uh, that's kept me here since. So, getting back to the kind of science fiction side of things, have you always liked science fiction? Have you you know have you read it from a dot, or is it something that you've kind of just really come into since you you're into this kind of you know the mathematic and the particle physics side of your life? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, although although. Um, Interestingly enough, I, I think uh, I, I sort of started with very old science fiction. So when I was maybe maybe um, seven years old, uh, six or seven, six or seven years old, I, I, I read read a lot of uh, Jules Verne. So one of the uh, probably the first book that would you would classify as science fiction was uh, um, that I read was Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, the, the sort of uh, wonderful book about Captain Nemo and Nautilus and and all that and. Uh, and I think I sort of went through Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and some of the uh, the other quite uh, old uh, old science fiction before, or proto science fiction before I, I then, then encountered uh, Asimov and Clarke. That was that was a bit later when I was a when I was a teenager. So so that's probably influenced uh, how the Quantum Thief turned out a little bit as well. I, I kind of like I kind of like the um, the older stuff. But um, yes, I, I've probably read <laughs> read an unhealthy amount of science fiction. <laughs> since. Who who do you admire now? Who's kind of in the field now, writing science fiction? Um, I would I would have to say probably Ian Macdonald uh, would be would be my um, sort of biggest paragon at the moment. I mean, I really really admire the way uh, he is able to combine sort of very 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 uh, high level speculative uh, aspects of science fiction with uh, really, really wonderful prose style and, and plotting and characterization. So that's, uh, that's one person. Uh, I'm, of course, a big fan of, uh, fan of Charlie, Charlie, Charlie as well, sort of from, from, 
for um, sort of the rigor he, he applies in, in, in his writing in world building and uh, and uh, sort of his, his craft. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot of a lot of writers also sort of outside science fiction. For example, uh, Michael Chabon, uh, I, I like I like very much. Uh, who I mean, who's sort of I think flirting with with the science fiction and fantasy genres, although although probably wouldn't explicitly be be classified as a science fiction writer. Um, but yeah, yeah, one could one could list list many authors. There's also some Finnish authors who haven't been translated widely. For example, Johanna Johanna Sinisalo and uh, Lena Kron, who I think do actually have some some uh, books available in English as well. Tell us now. I, I think I've got this right. Did you send, or is the, the rumours that you, it was twenty-four pages that were sent to John Gerard Agency, and that's you're getting this kind of fantastic book deal just from sending twenty-four pages of your written work? Is that correct? Um, I, I suppose. I suppose it is. Yes. I mean, uh, so of course uh, there were there were a few few things that happened happened before that. Uh, so so at that point, uh, at that point, uh, John was already my agent. And uh, I think the real magical thing happened when uh, when he, he showed this sort of uh, first chapter of the Quantum Thief to Simon Stanton at, at glance. But um, I mean, I guess I had had some exposure before that, so so I had had a few few short stories published, and uh, um, so, which which ended up in sort of uh, the kind of uh, best SF anthologies like uh, uh, David Hartwell's and uh, Werner de Zouas. So so there was a bit of bit of exposure before that. So it wasn't sort of completely out of the blue, but of course it was completely an amazing, amazing thing, thing, thing that then happened. So, um, well, we've actually we've we've actually played one of your short stories, and we've still got two. I think we've got two getting in production now. But if anyone can remember, we played his master's voice, which was a cracking story, Hanno. That was a great story. Thank you. What you know? It's like you see, you've you've landed this three book deal. Is Quantum Thief? Is that it? Is that the end for that one, or will the next book be part of the same universe? But the next book will will be part of part of the same universe and will will continue the story. Although although I think it should be it should be possible to read reasonably independently of the first one. But um, I, I, the but the, uh, the three books are very much envisioned as as being sort of different facets of of, of the same same story. So uh, so yeah, they will they will certainly stay with uh, the universe and the characters and and uh, and uh, with some new characters as well for the for the next two books. Is is the second one wrote? Is it? Or can we? Can, when can we look forward to seeing that? Uh, no, I'm just uh, working on it at the moment, so so not not quite finished yet. But uh, is it going all right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Normally, when I ask a writer that, they don't like that. Oh, don't don't want to talk about it. Don't want to talk about it. So, but things are going all right with the second one, is it? It's not. Um... Um, I, 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 well, I, I hope so. So, remains to be seen. Seen what my what my editor thinks, but. Uh... So can we see any short stories coming out soon by Hanu? Or have the, have the short stories stopped now to kind of really concentrate on the novels? It is quite difficult to, to write short stories uh, at the moment, given, given that the, the, the energy that the, uh, the books are taking. However, uh, the, there is a, a sh- one short story coming out uh, in a collection edited by Jonathan Strahan, Engineering Infinity, um, and the story is called The Server and the Dragon. So, so, uh, so, so um uh, it's a hard SF anthology with uh, sort of some really quite cosmic stories in it. So, so uh, hopefully that that will be coming out. I think sometime sometime next year. Well, Hanu, it's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. It's been a, been a pleasure. You take good care. You too. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye bye. <laughs>
do look out for Hanu's book. You know what I mean? It's it's a fantastic book. Keep an eye out for his short stories. We're going to play. We've got a couple more short stories, and we've actually got an original short story coming up. Never been anywhere else apart from Starship Sova. Do look out for that. I'll put a link on to everybody who's been in the show today. Just before we go, I would like to play a little promo by Bob. <laughs> Hi there, my name's Bov, and I want to tell you about a little comic anthology called CrazyBov.com. I know what you're thinking. Oh no, not another anthology. What's so good about CrazyBov? Uh, it's free! The latest issue has got 11 strips by contributors from all over the world, so it's very internationally flavoured. You can see where each creator is from on the contents page. There's 40 black and white pages of some damn fine artwork, wrapped in a gorgeous colour sci-fi cover. It's not genre-specific, so there's a real mixed bag of strips. There's a horror story, some sci-fi, and even a couple of light-hearted strips too. It's freely distributed in shops and at events around central London and sent around the world to our subscribers. It's not a print-on-demand book. I print out a limited number, and once they're all gone, that's it. No more. If you can't make it down to the distribution points, then you can buy a copy online or subscribe. You only have to pay for postage and packing. It's always going to be free, no matter what. And once all the printed copies have been given away, it's also made available to read online or download for free. There's even a torrent available for all you members of Hydra. The aim is to provide a platform for creators and inspire others to experiment. To keep the comic free, we're heavily reliant on the adverts that appear in the book. If you publish comics or produce anything independently, then you can visit the website for rates. There's a big advertised link near the top of the site. Everything is welcome. You could be a record label, filmmaker, computer game developer, or a skate shop. Here's the web address again, crazybov.com, K-R-A-Z-Y-B-O-V.com. Thanks, and don't forget to read the classifieds at the back. There you go, Bob. Thank you so much. Do please, everyone, say hello to Bob. That is show 156. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Do join me next week. And just a reminder, if you have no song or anything that got a sci-fi slant, anything like that, send it over and we'll get David to have a look at it. Or if you want to compose one yourself, just like David did, that would be fantastic. It is not long until Starship Sova's Volume 2 comes out of the stories collection. It is, honestly, like I say... It's took when hell you year to sort this out. You know what I mean? Please. This is how, this is now how kind of, you know, support the show. I mean, there's a number of ways to support the show. Please don't forget, Sanatorium show, you know, £2.50 a month gets you a little private show and all to yourselves. That's a great way. But there's also this way. Do you know what I mean? Just support the show and treat yourselves to a book. That's how we kind of keep going. That's how we are. Hugo winning podcast. Eh? The first one. That would be fantastic. Look after yourselves. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Shut us
Let's go watch. Here are your people to see. Two.